You're listening to episode 118 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. You know, guys, I'm kind of glad that Marvel Netflix is finally over. I mean, it had some really dizzying highs for sure, but to, uh, to end the series with a Punisher and Saw crossover, it was really <laughs> ambitious, but it kind of just fell flat. Your joke would be a lot better if it was correct because uh we still have jessica jones (laughs) way to go wait was was jessica jones a saw crossover (laughs) (laughs) yeah that explains why i didn't like season two listen (laughs) listen uh jigsaw doesn't even say do you want to play a game to punish her pretty weak if you ask me (laughs) am i right no you're right Thanks, Marco. I got My you. boy. <laughs> uh, as you can hear, uh, the beast from the east has returned. <laughs> makes me sound like a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. Yo, that's cool. Well, it's because that means you're nothing to fuck with. There you yeah, go. Yeah, uh, that's accurate. Well, it's good to be back. Yes. Wait, uh, is someone missing? Someone is missing. Ah, yes. beans. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that we've done a show with all five of us since Ryan messaged us to say <laughs> that it bums him out when we do shows without all five of us. Now we're just doing it despite him. Right. He's going to be real bummed out today. <laughs> to, to be Will fair, he... the, the episode where he wrote in that was also the one where we dunked on Kale for being number five all that time. So Right, exactly. I don't know that uh, Ryan will be too bothered by this because number five <laughs> is absent. Yeah. So Like, this is the closest we could get to a perfect episode for him. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, Thank you for joining us here on another episode of the Comics Pals. If this is your first episode ever, we are happy to have you. Hopefully you enjoy what what it is that we do on this podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about DC Comics. They've got some big, big shakeups and changes going on over there. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Umbrella Academy trailer. We're going to be talking Punisher Season 2. We watched Woo! it. We're going to review it. We're going to react to it. So stay tuned for all of that. But I want to let you guys know how you can find us all over the internet. You can hit us up at thecomicspals at gmail.com if you want to write in to talk to us about the show. Uh, We are on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, all that jazz. We are a five-star rated podcast. So why don't you go ahead and add to that uh, by leaving us your review wherever it is you pick up your podcast. You can hit us up on social media at thecomicspals. And last but not least, if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you very much. You can make sure to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, share the video with your friends, drop us a comment. All that jazz is free to do, and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you, so make sure to help out the pals. Now, I mentioned that you guys can write to us, and uh, Ryan, who is a frequent writer, we mentioned him earlier, he chose to hit us up at thecomicspals at gmail.com with an email about last week's episode where we talked about kickstarter and breaking in comics so here's what ryan had to say hi guys the broader topic of your most recent episode was breaking into the comics industry i have a personal interest in this matter and i wanted to share some thoughts with you first a little background 
I was one of the primary songwriters in a band for 10 years. During that time, I realized it wasn't specifically songwriting that I loved. It was the larger, more general experience of making art. By the time the band ran its course, I was no longer interested in songwriting, but I still had loads of creative energy. So what was I going to do? For a time, it was infuriating. I always thought to myself, man, I would love to try writing a story, but I don't know the first thing about storytelling. Uh, at the same time, I knew if I could, couldn't get some creative project going, I was going to lose my mind. Then finally, I took the plunge. I started small, creating a character and slowly developing his backstory. Now I have an almost finished eight-issue script for a comic. I've even talked to someone who's interested in drawing it, and he did some great preliminary sketches for me. The problem is, unless you're independently wealthy, paying an artist is very, very costly. At the time, I told myself, I'll worry about that later. I just want to write. Soon after, though, reality set in, and as I calculated per-page rates, my heart started to drop. Now, I did a lot of research on comics writing before I even started the actual script, but somehow I missed the part where they tell you not to do an eight-issue series for your first story. Now, I can see at least one reason why that's not advisable. Additionally, I might need to pay a letter, inker, and colorist if my guy isn't up to the task of doing these things himself. Add that to the list of problems. When I think about all these barriers, I get nervous and worry that all my work will be for nothing. But I'm trying to just put that out of my mind for now and just focus on writing a quality script, which I plan on showing to as many people as possible to make sure it's as tight as it can be. Now, I have a question for Kale and a question for Sean, but everyone should feel free to weigh in. Kale, as a published comics writer, did you experience similar challenges? If so, how did you overcome them? And Sean, as an aspiring writer, do you have concerns similar to mine? Thanks for reading, guys. Sincerely, Ryan. P.S. I'm on volume four of Nick Spencer's Morning Glories, and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I'm, about, oh I'm about ready to drop it. If any of you have read it, is this book worth continuing? Thanks. Yes. Uh, Ryan, uh, keep, keep going. this is Kale. Uh, Let's get that one out of the shut way. Shut up. Yeah, get that one out of the way. Definitely keep going. It, it will lose you multiple times throughout this run, but keep going. Good. Glad you could answer that because I uh, I haven't read that myself. Uh, so, Kale, do you want to answer uh, if you experience some similar challenges? Do you want to take that one? Uh, uh, actually, I do. Uh, hey, uh, Ryan, uh, can you shut your face, please? Uh, thank you. <laughs> well, Thanks easy, lot, easy. He's trying to ask for for some, you know, for some advice. Kale, relax. Uh, Marco, uh, how about you butt out of my business? Easy number five. <laughs> uh, Ryan, so... get your disingenuous bullshit <laughs> out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so do I have the same concerns? Yes, I do. Uh, I have tried several times to get uh, comic books off the ground with different creators. I started when I was 18 years old. And uh, spent years working with two different people. Um, you know, I was 18, overambitious, trying to do something that was not ever going to work. It wasn't realistic. Um, of course, the two artists that I worked with separately uh, both bailed for different reasons. And uh, <clears throat> it wasn't until I took... Well... Two, two things really changed my perspective. Uh, one was taking a comics course at the Comics Experience. Um, that was a huge help for me. Uh, I learned a lot from that, and that taught me the, the value of being able to tell full stories and shorter scripts. Um, the Part of the course, the, the final project, was to tell a complete story in five pages. And... Uh, I was able to do that and felt really, you know, good about it. I learned a lot of lessons 
John Barber, who is currently, uh, I believe he is currently, uh, gosh, what's his role? He's at IDW. I forget his role. He's like senior editor or something like that, whatever he is. Um, he was the teacher at the time, and <clears throat> he was hugely influential on me. He really took me under his way, and I'm always going to be appreciative of that. Um, and then the other thing that really changed my perspective was actually Dirk Manning, because back then he wrote a column for Nuzarama. And I was uh, an adherent of his. I really, really, like, took every word he said as gospel. And what I learned from that was you need to try to tell stories in smaller doses. So uh, my biggest recommendation to you, first of all, I sympathize with your problem. Uh, eight issues is a lot in this industry. Uh, set, there, there are many comics, even Marvel-published comics, that don't make it past three issues, let alone eight. That's that's a lot. Uh, and to self-fund eight comics is a massive undertaking. Um, but my recommendation is to either find a way to start smaller. So to tell the eight-issue story in three issues or one issue or to tell a portion of that story in seven pages and get it produced and take it to a publisher and see if there is any interest because that's the best way that you're going to get this whole beast put put out um and if that doesn't work you can kickstart it we talked about that last week and we talked about the challenges with that but we also talked about the successes 69 percent of all kickstarters and comics were successful this year or in 2018 nice. Nice. so you have options. And um, I would also say, like, if, if anything, uh, one of the, the lessons from Dirk Manning and, and his uh, his book, which does collect the, the columns, um, right I would wrong. say, right or wrong, sorry, um, he, he mentions, you know, if you're going to make a comic, like, make the comic. So don't, don't necessarily be afraid to <clears throat> not be able to get it published. Because the process of making it itself is that step enough. Um, that's sort of like where I'm at. Uh, I, I released uh, like a, a short story, two pages, and it's just sort of the exercise of getting the writing done and working and collaborating with an artist so you can get that experience. And as you sort of grow, you can cultivate your, your connections to that. You can cultivate sort of the craft of that. Obviously, get better at it um, through doing and the financial aspect i i try to fund that like separately so i have like a extra account where i obviously the reality of comics is that they they cost money and so you know diverting if you want it diverting what money you have to like a fund specifically for that i think is helpful um and it allows you to slowly realize you know the rate at which you can potentially create because that itself is going to give you that motivation, if anything, being like, okay, you know what, I I, I can I can do this because I, I have the money, and if to Sean's point, I can condense these stories, or I can even tell a story that in and of itself that is just short, and you want to create that comic, like definitely go for it. And the fact that it's not being published in print doesn't necessarily matter because you should be able to still enjoy it uh, digitally. You know, there's huge successes 
from Kickstarter where you don't even necessarily have to publish something. You can just do a digital uh, a digital version, a digital download. You can go onto Tapas. You can go onto you know there's there's a multitude of platforms there for digital only comics where if you're open to just having it in that experience and within that sort of medium, um, it's definitely feasible. Uh, it's just about the way that you approach it um, and the way that you kind of handle the, at least for me, like the money side of it to make it, to get it produced. I think um, building off what uh, both Sean and Marco have said, and, and again, uh, calling back to advice that um, that I received from Dirk is I also think that there's no there's no shame and it's often a more advantageous move to like if this if this eight issue book that you've been working on is really special to you if, if you think this is like your magnum opus maybe this shouldn't be the first comic that you produce you know the first thing that you do shouldn't be your best idea shouldn't be your this is my eight issue statement that's gonna you know put me on the map like that probably shouldn't be where you start uh again to take it back to Dirk's own career I know he um Sean and I attended a panel that he did once that was you know based off right or wrong um which again is a book you should really pick up but uh and one of the things he said was you know like if you have a superhero story that shouldn't be your first story right um I think that's true when it comes to a longer story as well and that's advice that I took to heart because um you know I have two uh, different superhero stories that have between three and six issues, you know, scripted um, that I wrote over the last few years that I have no intentions of publishing anytime soon or maybe ever, you know, I did them because I had the story in my head and that was the exercise I wanted to do to achieve it. But actually I was really inspired by what Marco did last year with his comic. And, um, you know, my goal for trying to get something published is to focus on something smaller to actually do it, you know, because I think it's really easy to have uh, your eight issue arc that you put all this time into and you're working on art. And, you know, like Sean said, maybe you find somebody, maybe it doesn't work out. And I think you, and we've seen friends of ours fall into this where you, you build up this project in your head so much that this is your shot, you know, that you need to put all your eggs in this basket. And that's just not a good idea. You're better off, honing your craft and doing smaller projects and getting good so that when you do have the resources or the time or the right creative partners to make your dream project come true, that it's what you want it to be. Cause, um, with, with you know, without naming names, uh, I've seen people make that mistake. <laughs> That's for sure. I don't think it could be understated enough here that, uh, uh <clears throat> a really important thing to do is to probably go to some major conventions and talk to people and uh, not just for the networking aspect, which I hate that word, but in this industry, it goes a long way, but you'll get a lot of uh, diversity of, of suggestions because I don't think there is a uniform way of breaking into this industry. It, it, everything is kind of just accidental backdoor unless, you know, you know the right people to, help you get in the industry but for, by and large everyone's entry story is different and so if the you one thing to, they all uh, have in common though is they make a book yeah that's true so I, I would definitely take the time to go to a major convention it doesn't have to be you know san diego comic-con or whatever but take the time to go to a major convention and talk to people just be candid because everyone has been where you are starting from at some point Mm -hmm. just just go and and listen because that's the best way to sort of 
learn is to just kind of sit there, hear, understand, and be like, okay, cool. This was, like Bill said, one of the ways, not the way. Also, last point, uh, there are a lot of uh, comic book creators on Twitter, obviously. And uh, if you follow them, you'll see that they talk all the time about the way they broke in or advice that they have or process or whatever. Because there are a lot of people like you who ask these questions and they get answered over and over and over again. Uh, So if you put the effort into following these people, uh, Brian Michael Bendis is tremendous about this. He has a Tumblr page that he runs where he's constantly answering questions and giving advice and things like that. He also wrote a comics book, a how-to break into comics book. That's tremendous. I recommend it highly. Um, So Scott McCloud is another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's more of a like how to write comics. how to write comics, whereas Bendis's book is like more getting into the industry. Yeah, like how to how to how to write comics, but how to make your how to get into the industry. So, um, so I I remember <laughs> I remember when I first graduated college, I um, was listening to a lot of podcasts with comic book writers. I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the show. Um, and I listened to an interview with Jeff Johns, how he talked about how he cold called Richard Donner, the director of Superman. Yeah. And he, you know, talked to some kind of secretary there and through like the fumbling of phones transferring, he actually ended up talking to Richard Donner who got him an internship uh, on his film set, which is how he led to becoming a, uh, you know, comic book writer because, you know, through Richard Donner, he was introduced to DC Comics and the rest of his history. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the same thing. So I literally called, uh, I called DC Comics headquarters, found like his extension, and I just left a voicemail. And he actually called me back. What? <laughs> really? This is, really? I, I was at Hershey Park. That's so funny. And I got a call from Jeff Johns. And I what? explained, well, yes. And I and I explained to him on the phone. I was like, "Listen, I was very inspired by your story, and I'd be really interested in doing the same thing." And at the time, this is when DC was relocating from New York City to Santa Barbara. And he said, "Unfortunately, right now we don't have any internships here, but it looks like you're pretty close to New York. I know some people up uh, at Warner Brothers in New York because that's the parent company. I can personally send them your resume, and we could try to get you over there." And I said, "Yes, please." It didn't pan out, but the, he like legitimately gave like uh, gave a really uh, helping hand there. That is incredible. I for all the things I know about you, Phil, the fact that we made it a hundred and what eighteen episodes, and this is the story you've chosen to omit. <laughs> I've never told you the story, really. <laughs> no. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm blown away. That was that's very cool. Yeah, I was with my mom and my brother, and I was like, holy shit, Jeff Johns is calling me. And they're like, who's that? <laughs> I was like, it's a freaking guy. Wow. So apparently, Ryan, call Jeff Johns and he'll hook you up. <laughs> uh, one, one last note um, that I just wanted to mention. There's a, a podcast series called Working by Slate, and they have a, an entire season. Like I think it's about like six, seven episodes of just talking about... Um, talking to creators and talking to store owners, talking to uh, comic book historians and um, essentially giving you the full range of the, the industry that allows you to sort of uh, just take like a, like a peek behind and, and get some insight from all aspects. No, Marco, you're wrong. There's only three podcasts you listen. You need to listen to Ryan. It's the comics pals, 
the video game pals, and the and new wrestling box. pals thing oh. that we're doing. <laughs> no, don't listen to that one. That one's bad. Okay, so uh, <laughs> thank you, Ryan, for writing in. I think uh, what what I got out of this conversation is that each of us have a lot to say on this subject um, because um, I think deep down we're all creative people. Not even deep down. Some of us are wearing it on our sleeves. Um, and part of why we do this is because of that. So uh, I think that question inspired a lot of thought, and I feel like this is a conversation we're going to have Again, pretty soon. So, um, hopefully, yeah, we can get you number five's opinion one of these days. Yeah, hopefully, no. uh, this was <laughs> helpful for you in some way. So, uh, let's move along. Let's jump into the pals polls. Uh, so, Marco and Phil, you both chose the Shanghai Red trade. Shanghai Red. Uh, I really enjoyed the uh, first issue when we reviewed it. I did not look it up. I made a boo boo. Um, but good job, bud. Uh, this the story was really cool. I really like Joshua Hickson's art. Um, his his work is phenomenal, and so just for that, plus it's Sabella, I I want to pick it up. Um, it's a pirate story, and I'm there for that as well. So like, it, it it's a cool book that I think you guys should pick up as well. Is that why this book isn't on Sean's pull list? Because I read pirates. it already. Because of the pirates. No. Yes. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> I I I bit the bullet and read it despite the fact that it has pirates in it because it was written by Chris Sabella, who I really like. So Yes. Uh this is a book I was anticipating seven months ago when we were talking about all those new image books that were coming out. Um I did not realize it was coming out in trade paperback so soon, but I'm not complaining. Uh, like Kale, I'm typically a trade waiter, uh, and so uh, I actually I actually already put this on uh, order on Amazon, so uh, it should be coming to me in a few weeks, I guess, because it comes out on Wednesday. I'm really excited. I really like Chris Abella. Um, if you recall, I had him as my most anticipated talent of 2018 at the start of last year. Uh, and I'm called that one, right? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm ready to stick my teeth into it. Very cool. Yeah. I'm excited for this one too. I, I had, um, intended on picking it up in singles, but, uh, my, my LCS, I guess just didn't anticipate that it was going to be very popular. So they never like had enough issues and like it hit a point where like, Oh, I missed one and two. Here's three. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait for the trade. So I'm excited to read this one too. The good news is that the art in this book is actually tremendous, so uh, you'll have a nice format to check that out in. Awesome. Uh, so Pete chose Life is Strange 3. Yes. Uh, so I think I talked about this, I guess, two months ago now, but um, uh, Titan is doing a adaption of Life is Strange uh, via comics. I read the first issue and enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, you know, Normally, I don't really go for the licensed comics, but... Uh, Life is Strange is an IP that I really like so much, and with Life is Strange 2 focusing on, like, a different cast of characters, it's nice to get another story uh, about Chloe and Max, so um, I didn't actually realize that issue 2 had already come out, I missed that one, so I'm gonna have to go back and grab that, but I'm definitely looking forward to uh, catching up and reading issue 3 next week. Cool. So I chose Heroes in Crisis number five. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Already laughing. Yeah. You're dedicated, buddy. I'm sorry, Sean. <laughs> All right, listen. <laughs> I loved the last issue, issue four. Uh, it, it's not that it brought the series back for me, but it, 
you know, I, I'm not out the door quite yet. You know, the door's open, but I'm not out the door yet. And uh, hopefully, issue five is what sways me uh, and, and and makes me feel like this this series is worth really investing emotionally into. Sean, you sound like a spurned lover. Like you're like bags are packed and you're halfway out the door and they're like, baby, don't go. And you're like, all right, one more chance. Yeah. yeah. That's his whole relationship with Marvel Comics. That's my whole relationship <laughs> with comics. That is in general. Yeah. Sean's a glutton for punishment. That's correct. So can I, you know, can we'll I confess see. something to you real quick? Do it up. I don't remember anything in issue four except for Blue <laughs> being there. Alright. <laughs> What am I going to say? Uh, I know you're the type to read the prior issue before you read the yeah. new issue, so I'm sure you'll be fine once this one drops, and we will be reviewing it as per usual. Uh, I want to take a quick minute. Normally, this is not something I would do, but I have hyped up the return of Buffy a lot, and I just wanted to say my piece about this first issue oh, real yeah. fast. Um, uh, I'm not going to spoil anything. Phil's uh, taking his headphones off. Phil, I'm not going to spoil anything. Uh, I didn't even know you, you cared. Even... No, yeah, no. Like, do you even care? That's why I took my headphones off, because I don't care. <laughs> so you're just a rude motherfucker. Completely rude, yeah. You scamp. Uh, Thank you, Marco. I, I, the, the, all this production you've done, I could have already said my piece. <laughs> I just wanted to say that uh, it is absolutely incredible. Uh, Jordi Belair and Dan Moore did a phenomenal job. Um, it was really emotional to read this because it captures the spirit of Buffy so, so incredibly well. And I think that any person who's ever loved Buffy or any person who's been curious about Buffy, this is an absolutely incredible time to jump on board. And this is what I wish that the Buffy comics that followed the show were more like it's cool to see these kids back to you know being teenagers um, and having to deal with modern problems, but also still being the characters that we recall. So, so it's like is it like a reboot? It is a reboot. It's like Ultimate Buffy. It's like same characters <laughs> in the modern era. Yeah, yeah, you could say that in the uh, future. And what's cool about it is like Willow's hot from the get go, but she's also gay from the get go, which is really good. Nice. Um, so it, it, in a lot of ways, it skips some of the things that Buffy, the show, took a lot of time to get into. Kind of just like sets you back to a square one, but like already at the status quo that you kind of expect. More or less. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. nice. I'll have to I'll have to recommend that to uh, our pal Jeremy, who uh, has made a couple appearances on the Riverdale Review. He's a huge Buffy fan, so I'm sure he would enjoy that as well. Yes, absolutely. That's all. That's all. Cool. Normally not I'm really something happy I would for you, do. man. Thank yeah, you. well, that's yeah, that's totally cool. Uh, you know, obviously Buffy's a franchise that means quite a bit to you, so I'm glad that it's delivering. Uh, yeah, it, it's probably more important than any other uh, franchise that I can think of right now. Uh, it, it's not my favorite show of all time, but the the characters, the world, all that stuff means more to me than probably any anything I can think of. So cool, even more important to you than the cast of Iron Fist. <laughs> Dude, what's her name? Uh, oh, God. <laughs> uh, never mind. She's pretty important not, to me. You're not so different, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're going to jump into the news. 
And we're going to talk about DC Comics because there's been a lot of happening with DC. So the big story with DC Comics is that they are making some changes, organizational changes to, quote, get back to their publishing roots. Oh boy, I hear this every five years. Right. Like, what does that even mean? Now, this story first broke, at least as far as I was aware, uh, at Bleeding Cool, who started to pick up the seeds of this thing. They said that they were aware of some big changes and shifts that were coming, probably going to be some layoffs associated, um, different publishing initiatives, things like that. Cool. So on Wednesday, we finally learned what this all, what it all meant. Here's the big message that they sent out. Uh, it's very long, so I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just, you know, give you snippets. Today has been a challenging day. We have made organizational changes across DC that we believe will help to strengthen and evolve the division for future successes. With these changes come difficult decisions, which we take very seriously. We recognize and appreciate that all of our employees have made considerable contributions to our business and that it is difficult to lose colleagues, many of whom have been here for a long time and have made an important impact on DC. We thank them for their hard work and dedication to DC. As always, we are committed to taking care of our employees and will be as thoughtful as possible with those who are impacted by these changes. Together with Dan and Jim and the executive team, we have spent time assessing DC's business as well as the comic book publishing landscape. DC is going back to its roots of delivering epic stories with our world-class characters, stories, and brands. Being a premier house of storytelling will never go out of style, and we intend to ultimately super-serve our existing fans while providing new compelling content that engages and excites even more fans around the globe. Rest assured, the direct market will remain at the heart of our business and will continue to be one of our greatest strengths. The new streamlined structure is focused on creating, delivering, and supporting a robust publishing operation that will allow DC to be nimble, navigate an industry in change, and thrive. As we communicated today, we are forming three distinct work streams, editorial, production, and manufacturing, and publishing supporting services. Now, the rest of it is just mumbo-jumbo. Word salad. Blah, 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 PR, 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 blah, blah, blah. Don't you love when you get several paragraphs of text like that, and ultimately you walk away and it's like, you didn't really say much of anything. Yeah, and and by the way, this this was a statement that was actually circulated within DC. Uh, it wasn't in, initially like an interior email. Yeah, it wasn't initially for public consumption, but there were questions, and so they sent this out to the public. Um, they also mentioned towards the end that DC, uh, well, really Dan Didio and, and uh, um, oh God, why am I blanking on his name? Jim Lee, thank you. Mm. Uh, yeah, no problem, buddy. <laughs> I was thinking myself. Uh, they're going to do town hall meetings discussing this whole thing with everybody who works at DC. That's great. Now, why the focus on publishing? Why are they talking so much about something that we just assume DC does all the time? There's a reason for that. So first of all, DC Entertainment doesn't exist anymore. That's wild. It's now... DC. Sounds like nothing. Well, DC Entertainment was a huge initiative they launched like six years ago. Exactly. Okay, so you're in the know. So 
the difference between DC Entertainment and DC is that DC Entertainment was a full scope in-house uh, publisher, uh, you know, toy maker, you know, uh, animated all, movies, animated movies, everything under Video one games. house. Video games under one house. That is changing. Now DC is focused purely and squarely on the publishing of comics. Why is that important? Because DC Comics currently right now is selling half, just about half, as many comics a month as they used to. That's brutal. Really? Wait, okay, let me clarify that statement. Selling. When I say that, I mean, I should I should say pushing out, not the money they're oh, making. Okay. Like releasing. Okay. Like okay, releasing but that makes comics. a lot more sense. They're but, releasing but, half yeah. as many comics as they used to. Yeah. But the the, t- the amount of titles they're releasing is, is half. Half. That's insane. So, yeah. Um, in December, it was night marvel's 90 to dc's 52 that's almost that's almost double folks yeah in november it was dc comics 67 to marvel 79 so marvel went up dc went down and that's just in terms of what they're shipping monthly and in april uh they have slated uh where is it i have the number in april they have slated uh i think i believe it's 64 um, so there it's 54 actually. And three of those are books that are ending, hmm. which brings me to my next point that DC is canceling three new, three different series. They're canceling Titans damage and Scooby-Doo apocalypse. Titans is crazy because there's a show right now about this, right? So I'll stop talking. I want to get your guys opinion about where DC is at. I think this paints a picture that none of us really realized before this whole story was broken. And again, got to give credit to Bleeding Cool here. What do you guys make of this? It's Rich Johnson, as it always is, with these kinds of stories. It's funny because we always talk about how there's too many books in the market. So I think that if anything, like strategically and based off just the way that we've sort of spoken about it, I think it's the right move because if... um, DC Entertainment becoming DC is going to be solely the focus of publishing. Being a little more strategic and smart about it might make sense, uh, and you might have less of sort of a an upfront loss or an upfront cost. And at the same time, I'm assuming that those other arms of DC are just going to be rolled up into the larger Warner Brothers or within another uh another company that can do those things more effectively and a little more efficiently because you're starting to silo everything and so i mean this is this is cool because i think that they're trying to think a little more long term now in terms of the books that they're publishing but if they're trying to re-up the number of books and they're trying to bring back the volume i think then that might be a bit of a mistake like keeping it at where it has been, knowing that DC has been uh, a pretty big seller. I think it's not selling as much as Marvel is uh, in terms of at least market share. But even so, they're still up there on par with Marvel, who's releasing the 90, the 90 books at the same time from a sales standpoint. 
you're missing the underlying here. What's been happening the last year, though? There's something that's not right. Let's like let's 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 recap for the listeners everything that's happened at uh, DC Comics in the last year. DC President Diane Nelson stepped down. DC CCO Jeff Johns stepped down. Jim Lee is now sharing his publisher role with that of a CCO, which is what Jeff Johns was before. Uh, now Pamela Lifford is the new president of DC Comics. Uh, in addition to all this. There's rumors that Dan DiDio's role is being reduced. Um, that, of course, is unsubstantiated, but like, there's so many rumblings at the top. In addition to this, now DC... Uh, um, uh, what was it called? DC Entertainment or whatever? That's ending. And they're going back to this publishing route. While all the while, they're publishing half the books. Something doesn't smell right here. Like, something with, you know, the management department at DC comics someone's not happy and it's wild because a year ago we were talking about how dc was taking a larger share of the pie and how it seemed like they were getting all their ducks in a row with a combination of books that uh, uh, pleased a mass audience and having a line like you know um um young animal or whatever that would please a more hardcore audience but clearly something's not adding up here yeah i think the stuff that you're laying out there phil is what immediately stuck out to me in this conversation is that listening to, um, as I called it before that, like PR word salad, like we're clearly in a, a, a period of transition at DC, but in terms of what this actually means, I think it's, it's getting increasingly difficult to, to know or to guess yeah. or to speculate because these decisions seemingly don't make much sense, you know, because I think, the idea of DC being refocused to, you know, their quote unquote publishing roots, right? That they're going to focus on publishing. That to me speaks to the fact that DC's comics are successful right now, but that's about the only part of their business that is successful. Right. You look at Marvel on the other hand. Um, and as Marco said, even though I think that there's a perception among a lot of diehard comics fans that Marvel's not in a healthy place. A lot of their books are selling really well. But more importantly, um, Marvel, I think, as a as a brand, has a lot more value right now than DC does. Uh, if you're somebody who's not looking at it from a comic book perspective, right? Every one of the movie franchises that Marvel has established has become a franchise in its own right now, where there are brand deals and action figures and 7-Eleven cups and whatever the fuck else you can think of for characters as obscure and previously irrelevant uh, as Ant-Man or, or even Black Panther, right? Is a character who's like a C-lister until now, and now that's a uh, a household name. And, well, let me finish. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, sorry. And I think, similarly, Marvel went through a, a pretty... Sim not necessarily a similar restructuring, but a similar period where their identity was unclear. And I think looking at the development of Marvel games as an offshoot of Marvel in the last couple of years is a great example of what we might be seeing DC ramping up for here. Because uh, Marvel had a history of their characters being licensed to a lot of terrible games, and they saw that there was money that was being left on the table. And now with Marvel games, we got the first you know, real proof of what that partnership looks like. And it's the Spider-Man game that came out on PlayStation 4, which was of a much higher quality and which sold like fucking crazy. And I'm sure that the, you know, 
bean counters that at Warner Brothers are looking at DC and thinking we have this incredible publisher with this you know huge breadth of some of the most valuable IP in the world and some of the probably most valuable untapped IP in the world and we're not managing it well and whether that's because they don't have faith in the leadership at DC or they feel like DC is being spread too thin it seems as though they feel like a, that it's time for a change and I, I think that's what we're seeing here but that being said a lot of these decisions in light of that don't necessarily make sense to me now I think it's clear to the listener and to the rest of us that you just want an excuse to bring up Spider-Man for the PS4. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but with regard to someone like Diane Nelson, I get that because that has to do with the DC Entertainment. But the, 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 the verbiage here is talking about their publishing department. And if you go just to December 2018, eight of the top ten books that best sold – in, tw- in December 2018, just last month, were DC comic books. And it's really curious that they're so interested in going back to the meat and potato comic books once again, despite the fact that uh, on, 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 on surface, the, the, the publishing department seems like it's doing pretty well. I, th- I think that there, there is room for a little more more context hit us i love i love when sean does this it makes me feel like i'm watching like like one of those like documentary like unsolved mystery shows where you're like i get it this motherfucker did it and they're like just kidding there was one piece of evidence we held from you (laughs) turns out it was marco i wouldn't be me actually (laughs) i wouldn't put it past me (laughs) so black label was DC's huge, you know, yeah, you know, crowning achievement. We're gonna shake things up. How many black label titles have actually come out so far? The answer is one. Yeah, yeah, and then they did they like kind of retroactively made some things that had already come out black label, but of the original books they promised, only we've only seen one of them, right? Right, one of them. Where is uh, Batman and the Outsiders? Uh, there, there are several titles that have sort of seemingly fallen by the wayside, right? These are books that were supposed to be on DC shelves already that are not. So they're missing things. Maybe it's time for DC to tighten up on the publishing end. Maybe because there's so much focus on other things, they're missing things. That's a theory of mine. That even though, like, DC is stretched right now. Uh, Marvel, as a comic book publisher, does one thing. Right. And then you have Marvel Entertainment, which does, does movies. And now Marvel Games, which handles video games. And they're all separate companies with different leadership. And that's that. And not only that, but DC has comics in Walmart. They have comics in Target. Right. They and, and they've got all these different things. Well, where's the focus on brick and mortar stores, them getting their stuff on time and supporting those stores with books that are releasing consistently when they're supposed to? I think that perception is that DC is in this great place, and I think it was Phil that said that, or and actually was it was Pete. Um reality is that I think they need to get their house in order. That did lead to some firings, like we said. Uh, it was less than, I think they said 3% of the actual workforce was laid off. That's a lot. 
including yeah for a company as big as DC yeah including Mark Chiarello who uh, had worked for DC for 26 years and Gosh. was their uh, editor editorial art director Bro. which is a position I didn't even know existed but uh, yeah unfortunately Guys. he he did lose his job. Guys, think about it. If I if if it did work out that I got a job over at DC because of Jeff Johns, I could be laid off now. Thank God you ended up down this path, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it like Sean to your point. I think it makes sense because like kind of like as I said, they're trying to like sort of break off into what Pete was saying. You know, Marvel has its own sort of section subset for everything that it does, and yep. if they're trying to realign and reshuffle stuff. And again, we're, you know, Young Animals is gone now. The Vertigo stuff has been under some controversy. And the the books that have been published from there are, are, are good as well. Um, but and Black Label is whatever Black Label is. Well, and then they've also announced, what, like three imprints run by Brian Michael Bendis. And, you know, like they are establishing all these smaller publishing initiatives, which I'm sure is spreading them even more thin. Right. And if they're going to try to centralize that, I mean, I think that that is sort of an attempt of centralization, being able to segment out things like, hey, this is something that caters to this person, this person versus just having a whole slew of like Marvel throwing out all of their books, but without necessarily having a segmentation. It's sort of just like these are the things that you want to jump into uh, because this is just the things that Marvel publishes where DC's coming in at it from like a, hey, you know, Vertigo's for Vertigo people, DC's for DC people, Wonder Comics is for Wonder Comics people, et cetera, et cetera. And that- They feel more curated. Right. And I think that Mm. aspect is what's been helping the so-called optics of DC success and to, to continue to run on that, this is sort of the choice and option that they're taking. Which- I do think like makes sense when you think about it because to Marco's point, right? Like the the segmentation that they have at um at Marvel has clearly played paid dividends, you know? Like I don't, you know, I don't I don't know that much about Kevin Feige like as a personal guy. I I don't doubt that he has a a deep understanding of of Marvel's characters, you know? But like it doesn't take the same person who's going to lead a publishing arm of a comic book company to success is not necessarily the person to lead a multi uh, medium like entertainment company. You know, like the fact that they have a guy like Feige who gets the characters and has a vision for what they should look like on the screen is the reason that Marvel Studios has been a success. And I think the I don't remember the gentlemen who are in charge of Marvel games uh, by name off the Bill top Rosen. of my head, but yeah, yes, yeah, and and they're they're all they're similar people like with that experience in the industry that they're in that they're operating in, and I think if that's what DC's trying to do now, I think that's actually probably a smart thing in the long run, even if optically right now it it seems suspect or mm-hmm. like it, it sows seeds of doubt because I think. Clearly, to Sean's point, they're spread too thin. There's too much going on here, and it feels like, despite the fact that overall uh, their comics output have been really high quality, uh, I, it, it does seem as though there is a lot of administrative struggling going on right now, that there isn't a clear vision for the direction of the company 
which is a problem. It must be very frustrating uh, if you're Warner Brothers, who has uh, they have their whole slew of issues themselves, or Time Warner more specifically, and you look over at Disney, and everything seems like looks from the outside like a well-oiled machine, and you look at your you, the the only realistic comparison to Marvel, which is DC in-house, and you're like, what is wrong? Why can't we do this? This has been over ten years, and we still can't do this. What's wrong? Yeah, funny enough, like, DC's been owned by Warner Brothers a lot longer than Marvel has been by Disney, and, you know, they say what you will, right? I think there's a lot of negatives that have come from Disney's acquisition of Marvel, but the the company is the most financially successful that it's been since ever the comics bubble burst, you know? And yeah, ever. More than that, right? More than then. Um, and that's that's no small coincidence i think this is a good place to table this conversation because i suspect we'll be talking about this more dc is clearly in a period of transition right now and that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing but i think what will tell us more is how they handle the next six months Mm -hmm. Um, because they're the new uh the new people in charge uh i believe her name is pamela gifford Yes. Uh, yeah, she's just getting rolling, right? Glifford, so Glifford. we'll see. Glifford, we'll see Glifford. where things go. Um, um who but, who uh, would have thought? Who would have thought? Like a year ago, this is where this story would have taken us, though. It's been an interesting ride with DC for sure. Yeah. Well, the the funny thing is that I think even. And and last point, we can move on. But even when we were talking about the positive uh, trajectory of DC, it was always about the publishing, yeah. not the company as a whole. Because I think we were very critical of the way that they chose to roll out the DC Entertainment app, rightfully so. Um, because even though apparently Titans is good, uh, it, it doesn't seem like the app is setting the world on fire by any means. And I think the rush nature of that project speaks to, um, shall I say, the lack of vision for certain aspects of the company. Fair enough. But I'm I'm rooting for DC. They'd definitely be better off if Wilson Fisk ran I, I think that's probably true of most companies. <laughs> that's not the only point of contention with DC this week. That's not the only issue. That's another DC's big week show. Yeah. Because DC is actually under fire for two different things right now. The first one we're going to tackle is actually from Superman Giant number seven, which is uh, their one of their Walmart comics. Uh, so there's a lot of controversy surrounding this Tom King story because it features the torture and murder of Lois Lane across several pages. Now... This is what the story is about. I'm just going to tell you exactly what it is. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. Wee woo. Uh, spoilers, you can't find the book anywhere anyway. It's Went a... three Walmarts, man. It's a Superman story where he is, like, sitting around waiting for something. And while he's doing so, his mind and his anxiety start ramping up to the point where he's constantly thinking about 
all these different ways that Lois Lane could be dying while he's there. And so it's 12 pages uh, in which she is repeatedly murdered. Now, for context, I want to keep I want everybody to keep in mind that this is a Walmart comic that is sold right alongside things like Pokemon cards and, you know, generic magazines and different things like that, that you would typically associate with children or, you know, general public. Yeah. 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 So keep that in mind and also keep in mind the fact that Tom King has recently come under fire for um, how Heroes in Crisis is sort of showcasing mental health issues and things like that. So what do you guys think of this? Is this people making much to do about nothing or is there an issue here? This is insane. What is going on with our boy Tom? <laughs> uh, Phil, you, you read this, right? I did not read it. I found oh. some pages of it that I sent to Pete and Sean because they uh, requested it. I didn't want to spoil anything for anyone that had intent, like intentionally wanted to read it. Read it. Yeah, um, I, I'm really frustrated because I wanted to buy an issue of it so that we could all look at it and digest it before we had this conversation. But um, apparently the distribution for these books is not as clean as we thought it was. Um, Cause I went to three Walmarts, several of which were like, we don't get those books or they're like, we never got them. They never showed up. So it, I was concerned by that, but I, I I've read two issues of Tom King Superman. I think this is the fourth one. Um, and it's, it's nothing to write home about. It's, it's completely fine. Um, just on premise alone and based off the limited, uh, material that we've seen from the book, uh, and it was clearly someone's like photograph of it. Um, what a bizarre concept for a Walmart book. And it's, and it's really grisly too. Um, there's been a big kind of pushback against, you know, love interests of male superheroes, being violently killed the last 20 years uh you know fridging so to speak not that she was fridged but uh you get an entire issue of of a variety way of ways that lois lane dies what what was he thinking it doesn't seem like something superman would just sit around thinking about either yeah well see that i don't i don't know because i think i i have less of a problem with the subject matter and again right grain of salt i haven't read the whole 12 page thing i saw the what seemed like the conclusion of it right so i i can't defend something i haven't read of course but on its on its face um you know the idea of of wanting to show superman as someone with anxiety over the potential loss of a loved one, I think is not inherently like, I don't necessarily agree with the assessment that, Oh, Superman wouldn't think that, you know, like I think that that might be a, a legitimate way to explore a, a human side of Superman, right? That like people who criticize Superman generally come at him of, well, what's the point? He can't be hurt. There's no drama, right? Well, the drama is stuff like this. So I'm not necessarily willing to uh, write off the idea on its face, the execution of which I can't defend. But my issue is more with editorial. 
with who thought this was a good idea for a book in this Walmart collection that to Sean's point is if you go to the area where you pick this book up, it's next to a lot of other all ages books. And I think that, you know, regardless of the conversation of, of around how Tom executed this story, I think it's it seems cl very clear to me that it was an inappropriate subject matter for the book that it was in. So I'll jump in here and say that I agree wholeheartedly with Pete. I think that um, I, I would imagine that most superheroes think like this. Uh, because, how could you not? Right. They have a lot of enemies. And the book, the one page that I saw showcases Lex Luthor murdering right. Lois. Right. And I haven't read the 12 pages. I would imagine each page shows something similar to that. One of his different enemies, you know, whatever. Um, I have a problem with the fact that this was in Walmart. And I have no... I'm always talking about how comic books should do whatever the hell they want. This is not a regular comic book, right? It's a little different than that. But the other issue that I have, and this relates to the problem that people mentioned about the fact that it is Lois Lane. Look, th that that's a ridiculous argument that Lois Lane cannot die or cannot be shown to die in, in Superman's mind because she is his, his, his wife. Um, that, that, you know, the fridging issue. I think that's ridiculous. What I, what I get, though, and the, the way in which I understand the torture element of it is that they show it over and over and over again. A simple way to deal with that is, all right, well, he's thinking about all of his loved ones. Why do Mon Pa Kent not also die? Why doesn't Jimmy Olsen also die? Superman loves a lot of people. That would be a way... To take the heat off of the fact that it's only Lois, I think. And people would probably yeah. have a lot less of an issue with that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point, Sean. That's something from like a writing perspective that feels like a legitimate criticism. And I agree with you. I think that um, – and not to say that I that I believe that there's no merit to the idea of, of – um, the critique of fridging. It was certainly an overdone trend to the point where it became trite. And that's fine. But I also think that I take issue with the idea that, oh, we can't show any violence against a hero's loved one because that's always cheap. But I think to your point, like doing it for 12 pages, you know, that does seem a bit gratuitous. Yeah. And there are ways to showcase that that are not as, you know, that aren't going to draw as much heat. And I don't understand how Tom King didn't realize that this would be. We're, issue. we're kind of ignoring just the weird concept of this. Like, whose idea is it to have an entire story where the most optimistic hero in all of comic books, maybe all of pop culture, sits for an entire issue dwelling over the different macabre ways that his wife dies? What a bizarre concept for a book. I see. I don't. I don't agree with that. Like, I think. I think that if executed properly, could be really good because I think, right? Like, that to me is the power of Superman as a character. Is that he is the most optimistic. He is the best of us. He is all those things in so many ways. You could say he's like a god, right? But it's those moments where he shows his vulnerabilities and his human side that make us love him and that is a human thing you know that's a human thing for you to be afraid that 
someone you love could be hurt, especially when you're someone who has enemies and you're someone who's a tar- who is you know a lot of people want to hurt you. And what's the easiest way to hurt Superman? Hurt somebody that he loves. You know, like I don't think that that inherently is a problem. It, it, it's it seems more like a time and place kind of thing, and and perhaps to Sean's point, an execution thing. Marco, I want to throw this back to you. Um, what are your thoughts? Because you always you always talk about censorship in art. What are your thoughts about whether or not this is a like divorce yourself from the idea of whether or not Superman would think about this? What are your thoughts about the fact that this took place in a Walmart comic book? Uh, I mean, kids walk into comic book shops all the time, and the messaging behind the marketing might be different, but the people who are going to consume it are going to consume it, and if I don't have an issue with it in a comic book shop, I don't think I should have an issue with it in a Walmart. I think it's different here, Marco. That's an interesting perspective. I said I think it's different here, though, Marco, because the kids going to a comic book shop are the ones that that they have to go out of their way to go to a comic book shop, whereas here... Walmart is like by definition the most general audience designation there is, and there's gonna be a bunch of kids that pick this up that would not normally go into a comic book shop. Right, but then it's still a kid. That that's true. Let me share some tweets just to add a little uh, flavor to this dialogue. So uh, at Good Life Co Eleven says. At Tom King, I've been buying the Walmart Superman books and sharing them with my 10-year-old son each month. It's been fun until now. I won't share number 7 with him because a 12-page Lois Lane Slough comic isn't something I want him to experience. Uh, at Ronald Rump Comic tweeted, uh, At Walmart is selling a DC Comics pub- and DC Comics published a comic book with the murder and torture of Lois Lane. Walmart, this is not a comic book for kids. DC, this is not how you kick off a great opportunity to bring back a direct offering of comic books to kids. Uh, so it's it's just a lot of that. And then someone said, when exactly do we cancel Tom for the shit he is explicitly doing on the page? Uh, so people I, upset. I, if I, if I was a parent of like a 10-year-old, I definitely wouldn't want them reading this. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And, um, you know, I think, like Marco, I'm I'm one to err on the side of... I, I don't believe in censorship, right? And I don't believe in the censorship of art. But I also don't believe in exposing children to art that isn't appropriate for them. You know, and I think I don't... I absolutely agree with what you just said, Phil. You know, if I was in this position where I was a parent who had been buying this book and sharing it with my with my child and I came across this, I would be angry. And I would be upset that there wasn't a clear line between these kinds of books. And I think um, this is a little different than the uh, the comic book shop analogy that we just made. And, and I, I think I disagree with you a bit, Marco, where I think there needs to be a clear line with what age a comic is appropriate for. You know, we have that in every popular form of art, right? We have the uh, MPAA for films. We have the ESRB for video games. Like, I, I don't think this is akin to, like, the Batman damned situation where people were like, oh, like, you're showing Batman's dick in this book? Like, kids read this. If you're buying your 10-year-old a book called Batman damned, 
with like hellish imagery on the cover, I feel like that's on you. Whereas I think if you're buying this book at a Walmart in an aisle with Pokemon cards and, you know, uh, an Adventure Time manga or Harry Potter a, a, a aisle away, I think there's a reasonable expectation that you don't that you're not handing your 10-year-old a book with a 12-page murder spread. And I don't I don't think that's unreasonable. And I don't I wouldn't even argue that that's censorship. I'd argue that that's that's poor editorial judgment that you thought this was an appropriate story for this format and for this book. I I, I agree with that that this was like for the general audiences a poor choice on the publisher side and on the editorial side, but for it to be released within this book meant that it would i guess for me be something that would be released elsewhere anyway because content wise in the eyes of editorial like it made sense to be to put it in this book right whether or not that was the right choice uh obviously we're we're on two separate sides of it but i mean i don't know i i i i think that it's i haven't seen it either so it, my opinion could obviously change based off the actual imagery, but where I see it now, I mean, I don't think it, I don't find it to be an issue. And this country is like, okay with uber violence anyway. <laughs> they we're sure going to talk, <laughs> talk about Punisher in a, in a second. So like, but Punisher, Punisher isn't being, and you're right. Like I, we're, we're, we're a culture that celebrates violence. That's indisputable. But I do think that there should be a reasonable division between content that's for adults and content that's for children. Or that's all ages, right? Like, I, I, I think that you should be able to buy a Superman book for your kid and know that there's going to be a certain level of violence or subject matter based on that baseline right like i think if you wanted to have a story like this that's fine maybe it should have been a one-off issue you know maybe it should have been in some other anthology series not in this seemingly all ages book that's being sold to a, a mass market so uh, i i'm curious then using sean's analogy or example if this issue had then been not just lois lane but had been all of his friends and family like, would you feel differently? Is it is it the fact that it was a, a repetitious murder and torture of Lois Lane, or is it no. the actual violence? It's the violence for me. Interesting. Uh, I I think I think there's a conversation to be had about the repetitious killing of Lois Lane, but I think that's a separate issue from where this story took place. I don't think that there's any amount of editing to this story that makes it appropriate for the book that it showed up in based on my understanding of what this book is and who its target audience is supposed to be. I think we've we've established our positions pretty well at this point. I want to end this conversation with something that I just read from Brad Meltzer, and then we're going to move on. Uh, Brad Meltzer did an interview with CBR in which he was talking about the impact that identity crisis had on comics. And in it, they obviously brought up the issue of... Uh, Sue Dimney, right? Uh, and her, her rape. I believe it was Sue Dimney. Yeah? Phil, yes, help yes, me out. Yes, yes, yes. yes okay, yes, thank yeah. you. By, uh, what was his name? Dr. Light. Dr. Yeah. Light, thank you. Now, obviously, at the time, that was controversial. 
people have shifted their opinions about identity crisis since then. I mean, we're well over 10 years out since its release. And he said... It's still fairly divisive. Yeah, what I'm saying is that it was divisive then. People really have decided they don't like it now. Yeah, yeah, okay, gotcha. So what he said was he made a choice as a writer that he felt added stakes and sparked a conversation about a real issue in our world that we should be talking about and not shying away from and that it was a different time and that if Identity Crisis was coming out today, he would have made different choices and that he specifically reached out to Tom King when Heroes in Crisis was announced because he knew what what it was and he told Tom, you are not ready for the way that people are going to react to this book because you don't know how vicious this audience is. Uh, he said that the audience has changed and that they're no longer willing to talk. They only want to bite. And I, I learned a lesson from there, from that, uh, from that piece of what Brad Meltzer said. And what a strange lesson, reaction to, to that. Basically, he's saying... Um, People aren't critical of my book because there's a lot to be critical of. It's the fact that the audience is just rabid and want to bite. Well, that's such a martyr stance to take. I don't think that's what he was saying. That's how I, I think what he, it. I think what he said is, at the time, it was divisive, but it sparked a conversation. Now people want to cancel you. That's what he said. And I, I think there is something to that, you know. And I don't, I don't think that that <clears throat> is. I don't think that means that we can't have a conversation, but I, I, I do believe that there is merit to the idea that we like right now we live in a, a cancel culture, right? You had that tweet. When can we cancel Tom King? Right? Because you don't agree with a choice that he made or you don't agree with how he wrote a story. And I don't think that that's right. You know? And, and I, I like, I don't, I'm not saying that that means that these people should be above reproach, but I do think that there's something to be said with the fact that, I think that the way that we talk to each other now about everything ranging from things that are actually important to stupid petty bullshit is very like, here's how I feel. I'm going to say how I feel. And that's that, you know, and and I don't think that there are a lot of people that are interested in having uh, a more nuanced conversation like we are right now and talking about where the right and wrong of it are. Yeah, and I think that's all Brad meant. But let's let's move on. I understand this is a hot button issue, but I want to talk about uh, some of the other the other controversy going on at DC. Uh, DC Comics Ooh. is publishing a book called <laughs> uh, Second Coming. Hell yeah! And it oh, is yeah. basically a, it's a book about um, a superhero whose sidekick is Jesus, and Jesus is, is sent down. Um, to be the sidekick because God is upset with how poorly Jesus' first attempt at saving the world went. So Dude, they're, just ripping, they're just ripping off Robert Kirkman's battle pope. It was the story of a, of, a, of, a, of a killer pope with his sidekick stoner Jesus. They just ripped it off. Mark Russell is the writer of the book, and he it's you know it's a parody book, and nice whatever. Um, there is a campaign on Citizen Go with 
over a hundred thousand, um, over other a hundred thousand signatures from people who are very angry about this title being uh, put out. And so this is the petition statement letter. Dear DC Comics Board and Management, I am appalled by your decision to publish Second Coming, a comic that features Jesus Christ as a clueless superhero sidekick. In a recent interview with Bleeding Cool, author Mark Russell described the concept behind his upcoming comic. He explained God was so upset with Jesus' performance the first time he came to Earth, since he was arrested so soon and crucified shortly after, that he has kept him locked up since then. In Mark Russell's comic series, Jesus comes back to Earth as a roommate of an all-powerful superhero named Sun Man. Would DC Comics publish a similar content about other religious leaders such as Muhammad or Buddha? This content is inappropriate and blasphemous. It should be immediately pulled from your publishing schedule. The big question, the obvious question is, do you guys agree with that? Do nah, you agree with cancel, that perspective? Cancel the petition. Nah. Yeah, no. Um... <laughs> I'm going to just come out and say this, like, and I'd like to preface what I'm going to say because I imagine this will... This has a, <laughs> Go for a Pete Slay. You going to let me get my disclaimer him. out, Phil? All right. So I just, I, I, I mean this sincerely because I there, I, there is a chance that this conversation could get heated. I don't mean to disrespect anyone's religion. You know, I totally am but. all for religious freedom and all that stuff that you know that is important and i think it's that i i believe everyone has the right to practice their own religion and i respect other people's beliefs as long as their beliefs don't infringe on anyone else's beliefs and i'm sorry but i don't believe that something being blasphemous matters at all i don't um because you asked this question would dc publish this about some other religion well, uh, I mean, there's plenty of religious fi- figures in comic books, you know, um, and I don't as an atheist, I don't believe <laughs> that Jesus should be held in any more sacred regard than Hercules or Zeus or whoever, because they're all fictional characters to the non God fearing person. Right. And I respect that you that you as a Christian could be offended by this book, but you being offended, you having, you know, um, your beliefs uh, challenged or in in your, you know, uh, opinion disrespected is part of the game of free speech. And I think this is one of those things where it's all okay or none of it's okay. And it it is, there's nothing wrong with making fun of Jesus or Christianity. There isn't. And, you know, I think if it was about something else, would you be this upset? Would you be this offended? Would you be starting a petition that there shouldn't be a comic about Muhammad? I don't think so. So to me, that speaks to the fact that you care because this offends you and you want people to listen to your your feelings and you want to feel heard. Well, in the same way that you feel like your position is right and that you deserve to be heard, I believe that this artist has the right to tell the story that they want to tell. And you as a consumer have the right to not pay for it or to criticize it or to, um, you know, even attack it. But I think for you to say that it doesn't deserve the right to exist because it offends you, 
I don't I don't feel like that holds much weight. Like separately, Mark Russell as a writer is able to handle and has handled these kinds of topics before with uh, with religion specifically in the Flintstones. He he he's able to comment on it intelligently and in a way that sparks conversation versus it just being quote unquote blasphemous. It is I ideally and based off his previous work going to be sort of a a conversation. It's going to be nuanced because that's the way that he writes and that's the way that he approaches uh, these kinds of topics. It's not outright, you know, I'm making fun of Jesus. It's, hey, I am proposing a question or I'm proposing a scenario and these are the ways that I'm sort of thinking through it. Yeah, I don't believe the intent here is to like punch down at Christians, you know? Yeah. I'm sure he has something to say. Um, I mean, the person who wrote this... uh point is that whenever a depiction of muhammad is made uh, which is a, a cardinal no-no in islam a lot of muslim folks get very upset about it because it's it is uh very blasphemous in that religion and so his point is you probably wouldn't do that because of how much that would upset that community why are you doing that to upset our community and there is a very well-recorded history in the United States of not pissing off Christians because they're very well-organized and they move very swiftly. I didn't even know about this petition, and it seemed like 100,000 signatures came out of nowhere overnight because all these people probably have no context for this book whatsoever, but they heard someone say, hey, this major comic book publisher is blaspheming Jesus. Let's sign this petition because this is blasphemous. And it speaks to how well organized this larger community is. Um, so I'm not surprised by this reaction because Battle Pope, I don't think ever attracted this much attention because it wasn't as large. It wasn't uh, published by a larger publisher like this book is. Um, yeah, and I mean, that was like Robert Kirkman's first comic. So nobody knew who he was. What about American mm-hmm. Jesus? Mm, that's it. There you go. Yeah, like I said, I think it all comes down to just what grabs this community's attention. Um, I don't know how. Oh, shit, this, preacher. That was mm-hmm. a, yeah. that's a that's a bigger book in hindsight. I think at the time of its publishing, it was still fairly niche. I I don't know how this book got on their radar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to be, yeah, I believe I believe there was a similar. Um, outrage when preacher was adapted for television though yeah that I makes sense so. because that's 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 in the news kind of that makes sense to right me. um yeah. i don't know i don't know how this book got on their radar for whatever it's worth um with regard to it being published or not that's uh, whether or not they're justified in their in their uh feelings on it being canceled uh, they're entitled to feel that way for sure i i don't want to take that away um should dc cancel it as a result I don't think so. I don't think that they should cancel it because 100,000 people are upset by it because I don't think they would ultimately read it regardless. First of all, I want to ask you, uh, Pete, if you were editing editing this episode, would you cut out your statements? Would you do that? <laughs> it's, so the, the funny thing is when you said that, I had this gut check of like, did I say anything that terrible? And I'm like, you know what? No. I stand by it. I stand by what I say on this show. Unlike some spineless number five ass motherfuckers out there. 
Thank you for saying what I wanted to say. Now, uh, Marvel recently <laughs> had a similar controversy. <laughs> That's the segue. <laughs> <laughs> It absolutely is. Just um, real quick, the end of this discussion, will you please throw Kale under the bus for me? Yeah, <laughs> gladly, gladly. It actually isn't the end of the discussion. I just wanted to um, bring up something we talked about uh, a month ago, which was when Marvel upset Hindu people in their X-Men comic right. where X-Men was deleting religion. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of anger and fire surrounding that. So I just wanted to say that to say that it's not only Christians who get like this. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, not at all. No, and I, and I brought up the fact that uh, in in Islam, in Muslim communities, uh, there is a history sure. of being upset by portrayals of Muhammad. And so it is a, a lar- people of larger religious communities do uh, tend to be sensitive about um, trivializing their their perceived trivializing yeah. of their faith. Well, my only point, the only thing I have to say about this issue is simply this. In culture right now, right or wrong, we can have that conversation. It is acceptable to poke fun at the dominant people, right? So white, straight men are the butt of many jokes from all sides. Men in general are the butt of many jokes from all sides. And Christians are the butt of many jokes from all sides. And, you know, part of the reason for that is because um, it's, you know, I think someone said punching down. It's more like punching up in this instance. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big reason why that happens, and it's kind of been like that for a while at this point. Um, Do you have to like that? No. But you're privileged in many other ways. That many other communities are not. And so that's why this is deemed acceptable culturally at the moment. And you don't have to like it, but were you really going to buy the book? Probably not. So get over it. Christians are the predominant religion in the the regions where this book will sell. Yeah. Well, I I think – and this is the last thing I want to say. I think the thing that bothers me so much though is that there are – pockets of the christian community that want to act um that like that get offended by things like this and act as if they're being persecuted like that they're like under attack right like feels very akin to like the war on christmas nonsense of like you're the dominant religion in a country where like your religion carries weight in a way that it probably shouldn't because there are increasingly more people that don't follow that faith or at least not to a t um, than there are that are this dogmatic. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna jump jump on, but we've we've got to get into our Punisher review. But we've got a couple more things that I want to talk about. So what we're gonna do is just quick takes on lightning round. Yeah. The following Rapid topics. Fire. I'm gonna bring them up. Say a couple words. Let's move on. Uh, George Perez, who is a legendary comic book figure, known for such things as. You know, kind of designing the Titans and making them what they are visually. Um, Judas contract is, yeah, is officially retiring from comics. Uh, he did put out a statement saying what you would imagine. He's got health issues um, that we've known about for a while, and he is going to, um, you know, fall back. Um, he is also going to continue to do conventions and things like that. 
uh, for the time being, but he is retiring from comics. Um, thank you, George Perez, for your contributions. I think the comic book world would be very different without you having worked in it. So uh, I appreciate everything that you've done. He he he's for a lot of people the definitive create the, the definitive create uh, creative talent for both the Teen Titans and Wonder Woman. And that's a career definitely worth celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, to Sean's point before, like <clears throat> the fact that, you know, his health has been in question, um, you know, but he's continued to work uh, speaks to the love he has for what he does and what he's done. So um, my hope is that, you know, you deserve or not, sorry, not that you deserve, that you enjoy your well-deserved retirement and uh, and have the opportunity to focus on your health and, um, you know, hopefully enjoying uh, your, your golden years here. Yeah, I have no connection to George Perez, but uh, you did your time, man. Take the, take the break. There you go. Uh, Black Panther, we've talked about it. Many times, just because of all the nominations it's getting, it's earned seven Oscar nominations um, for, obviously, a variety of different things. Um, so, Best Picture nomination. Uh, we got we to talk about that. This is the first superhero movie to ever get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, best Costume Design, Best Sound Mixing, Best Sound Editing, Best Original Score, Best Production Design, and Best Original Song. Now, we talked about Black Panther's failure at, what, the Golden Globes um, a couple weeks ago. I don't have much more to say. Congratulations to the team. You're not going to win. Uh, <laughs> this, this feels more like a throwaway than anything. Um, and there were a lot of people on Twitter wanting to say, oh, well, this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for The Dark Knight, or this wouldn't have happened if not for this, whatever. doesn't matter. Black Panther was a big movie. Even though this is a hollow thing, in my mind, it's a win for, quote-unquote, the culture, and congrats. Mm. Uh, definitely doesn't deserve Best Picture nomination. Um, uh, another movie that uh, was made with a predominantly dominant uh, black cast and black crew was snubbed this year which was sorry to bother you which should have been nominated hell it should win uh not that there should be a limit amount uh, on movies that have uh, a diverse cast or crew that should be nominated but i don't think black panther was one of the best movies this year um especially when it comes to academy award type movies um uh, yeah but that's bullshit because like i think that's such a straw man argument that's like what always happens when the nominees come out is this movie doesn't deserve it because i think this movie was better and maybe it was, but I think like, to me, I, I do look at this as a win because, you know, we, we talked a lot about the Oscar nominations when we, I think we did an entire main topic on whether or not Black Panther deserved a best picture nomination. Um, and maybe, maybe it didn't, right? That's neither here nor there. I think um, to build off Sean's point while also somewhat disagreeing with it, I think this is a win. You know, like it's it's a win for a recognition, uh, the recognition of the movies that people actually see, because over the last like this isn't how the Oscars always were, you know, like they used to nominate the bit the biggest pictures of the year. And it's increasingly moved towards like art house and indie films. And there's an argument to be made that maybe it should have been another film somewhere or whatever. I think Black Panther was, um, as we described in our review, it was a moment 
and I'm glad that it's getting at least some recognition from the Academy, and I don't think it's going to win Best Picture by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the fact that it and movies like it have been kept out of the conversation for seemingly arbitrary reasons, um, his, like, over the last several years of the Academy, uh, is, like, it's representative of how out of touch the Oscars are, and I'm really happy to see Black Panther included among these films. I, I think it deserves a ton of the other awards it was nominated for. Best Original Score, I think it had a bang in soundtrack. Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Production Design. Um, all these are totally Best Costume Design. Uh, I totally get all that. I, I feel like this is the Academy acquiescing to a ton of pressure to nominate it because there's a lot of people who really do want it to be... Uh, they wanted to win Best Picture, but a lot of those folks haven't seen any of these other movies either. I want to say one final thing, and then we're going to move on. This is tokenism to me. That's why I don't give a shit about it. Uh, this movie was nominated because they wanted to placate a certain community, and I always think that's BS. Um, why would you nominate something that cannot win? Why, why even bother? Um, it's just saying, hey, you wanted this, so here it is. Come watch our show so you can watch it lose. Uh, and to me, that's that's valueless. I know a lot of people will be very excited about this. Obviously, Pete, you know, you feel great about it. If it had a chance of winning, I'd feel great too. But I know it doesn't, so I don't care. That's fair. I think, I guess that doesn't bother me so much because there are literally, I mean, how many films get nominated for Best Picture every year? Is it eight? Six? Yeah, something like that. Well, I mean, this year, this year there was eight. Either way, a, about 50% of them every year have no chance of winning, you know? Um, well, so that's I, don't, stupid. I don't necessarily see this as being any different. I think you're probably right that this is them throwing a bone to popular opinion, but like, good, because I think that the way that the the, the nominees are chosen um, and then voted on is like, if you if you do any amount of research into how the Oscars work, it's a bullshit rig system, and a bunch of the people that vote don't even see all the movies or or many of the movies that are nominated so whatever you know well, like i think there's something to know what you're saying sean about it being i guess a hollow victory but um i i'm hoping that it's the sign of more growth it's the sign of failing ratings well i mean they've changed a lot in the last few years they've been adding a lot more women uh, a lot more uh, minorities into the uh, academy younger people because it's definitely been uh kind of leaning toward more older white people phil um so because phil. there's been a lot of criticism of uh, ignoring movies that have you know uh female-led crews and cast and uh different uh, phil. what this isn't the oscar hour sorry you may- listen i no longer have an, an academy award show <laughs> <laughs> and for good reason, Phil. You exactly. and you and Andy are going to do a sequel. Uh, so we we watched the Umbrella Academy trailer. I want quick thoughts. Uh, I'm excited. Did you like it? This is a ne- new Netflix show. I forgot this was happening for a second. Uh, the trailer came out, and I was like, "Huh, all right, I'm gonna have to go and read this." And I, I didn't know it was by um, I knew it was by Gerard Way, but I didn't know the artist was Gabriel Ba. And I'm a yeah. huge fan of that guy. So like, I. I saw that more so, and I was like, oh, shit, I should, I should buy this book. You'll like it. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, seeing this trailer um, has basically just bit. It's like the same thing that happens every time that any one of Gerard Way's books get talked about. I'm like, yeah, man, I really got to check out some of his stuff, and then I <laughs> don't. So 
<laughs> maybe maybe if Marco gets into it, I'll finally be like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I should read this because I want to, but I just never never got around to it. Yeah. So I love the trailer. Uh, I was a big big fan of Umbrella Academy. It was probably the first non Marvel or DC book I ever bought, and huh. I bought it. Wow, be- really? Yeah, I bought it because of Gerard Way. Um, and I stayed for what I thought was a really incredible and different story. I love the fact that um, Ellen Page is in this show. Yeah. Uh, I love Great the actress. fact that it has a talking monkey. Everybody who knows me knows I'm way into <laughs> talking <laughs> gorillas and monkeys and things like that. Um, and uh, it, it captures the spirit of what makes Umbrella Academy, the comic book, different, just this trailer did. So I am very much ready for this. I was just going to say, it seems like something that will really translate well into a series like this. I just I just wanted to ask, Sean, uh, you said that you originally checked it out because of Gerard Way. Well, like, is that because you're a My Chemical Romance fan, or were you just like, I can't believe this guy's writing comics? No, I, I was a massive My Chemical Romance okay. fan, actually. Yeah, yeah, I believe when, that. When he was a young boy. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about that more in depth when the show comes out or when we're closer to the show. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Punisher. Uh, I, you know, we're going to get into our review, but I did want to, um, just talk a little bit about, um, the viewership because with each of these shows, we've talked about the drop in viewership. And as it turns out, Punisher has actually experienced a lower drop in viewership than all the other shows. So, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Daredevil all dropped over 60% um, from their prior seasons. Daredevil, or I'm sorry, Punisher with Season 2 only dropped 40%. I was just going to say, I wonder if that's because they had a lower viewership base to start out with than something like Luke Cage did. Well, I I don't think that matters because Sean's doing it by percentage. Not but if by it, like, but if if it already has a lower starting number, uh, oh, even I if it see. dropped, like the percentage could be it's disingenuous. Supplements. It's mm, sub- yeah. yeah, okay, no, I see what you're saying. I'm not very good at math. That does make sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that people know it's over now. That they're like, they're not going to be another one. Like, I can watch this, and it's the end. I was just going to say, like, I I thought that also just because it is a show rife with controversy those people it still gets that attention and so people are still going to watch it because uh, you know you have to pick at it i also feel like despite the fact that punisher first appeared as a supporting character in daredevil for whatever reason i feel like his show feels more siloed off from the rest of them yeah because he wasn't in defenders and like it like even the first season didn't play into the broader like defenders narrative that they were establishing in the way that Luke Cage and Iron Fist both did and felt like they were building to something. Punisher felt like its own thing that was self-contained. So I wonder if that had something to do with people being more willing to jump back on. One thing that I think often gets left out of the equation when we talk about the Marvel Netflix characters is that, and I'm ready to debate this, but I believe Punisher is the most popular. Uh, I agree. And especially prior to this whole initiative, and I think that a lot of people who like Punisher, they, they want to see the violence. And you're going to get a different brand of violence with this show than you will with any of the other Netflix shows. And I think this show um, 
on the surface appeals to a certain kind of person who's going to come back for this. I think you're probably right. Punisher probably was the most popular of the five Netflix characters before this initiative started. However, I think in a way that wasn't true for Luke Cage fans or Daredevil fans or Jessica Jones fans, there was a large percentage of Punisher fans that were turned off by this show because there was such a big difference between comic book Punisher and Netflix Punisher. Yeah, and I think when we've discussed this before, I think there's also a certain type of quote-unquote Punisher fan in the same way that there are like quote-unquote Batman fans where there are people that are like, I love the Punisher, but they don't really read comics and they're not really super familiar with the character they're more into the iconography and what they feel he represents you know so uh the other note is that the punisher has not yet been canceled it's safe to assume that it will be um but it, it has not been canceled yet and the executive producers have an entire story in mind for what could happen in season three i I wondered, and this is a good way to lead into the topic of talking about it, there were some decisions in season two that made me wonder if the showrunners knew that this might be the end. All right, so very excited to talk about Punisher season two. This is presumably the penultimate season of Marvel on Netflix before uh, all of these shows are canceled and uh, that partnership dissipates. Now... As we usually do with these things, we're going to start by me having you guys guess the audience score and the tomato meter score for Punisher Season 2. So who wants to start? I'll go first. Wait, can you give us the numbers for Season 1? Okay, yeah, I can do that. I can do that right now. Uh, So Season 1 was a 67% tomato meter score and a 93% audience score. Hmm. I... I will say this, and I've I've probably said it before. I think Rotten Tomatoes is a pretty useful tool at kind of gaining a broad understanding of the quality of a movie, but I think it's less representative of TV shows. Fair enough. I feel like it's fine. It's a fine metric for that if you're not talking about a horror movie or a comedy. (laughs) That's pretty good. Um... (laughs) I'm going to say, critically, it, so the, it was a 67% for season one. I'm going to say it's like a 55 for season two. It's a 93 for season one in the audience. I'll say it's like an 85 for the audience in season two. Um, I might I might do, uh, I think, 60 and... Phil, so you said 85? He yeah. did. I'll do 86. No prices right me, you asshole. What's up? So you said... <laughs> What's up? You said fifty-five eighty-six, right? Sixty. Oh no, sixty eighty-six. Okay, cool. Pete, I said fifty-five eighty-five. I'm gonna be a little more bullish. I'm gonna say that critic reception was like sixty-two, sixty-three, um, and audiences. I'm gonna give it like an eighty-eight. God, right. 80, 85, 86, and eighty-eight. Well, uh, you guys. Skipped a couple numbers. Those are my guesses. It's not my fault I went last. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, the tomato meter score for Punisher Season 2 is a 50%. Damn it! I I was closest, 55. But none of us win because you went over. (laughs) Well, we still have the audience score. Of 20 reviews, 10 refresh and 10 were rotten. So, 50. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, for the audience score, 
86 percent hey on the God money damn it there you go Holy price is shit. right baby that's yep. so annoying <laughs> take it it's my character Largo's the champ on that one yeah i mean that's that's about that's about what i was thinking walking out of it for context i do want to add that is season one had 76 total reviews 51 fresh 25 rotten so punisher um season two not as many reviews overall which probably speaks to that it hasn't been out that long and that the hype has died down for these shows so but also but at this point the the scores for the critics should all be in and it's just i think the general interest isn't there yeah that's fair to say so let's jump in um we do spoiler free first so spoiler free thoughts on punisher season two I was not as high on it as I was season one. I think yeah. starting, I was one, sort of excited. And two, I think the episodes were directed a little bit better. There had been a little bit more attention, which is interesting when earlier Phil brought up the whole aspect of, you know, they, they started talking, uh, this show was aware that it was getting canceled. And maybe you started to feel that towards the latter like towards the back yes, half of, absolutely. of this yes yes and and so for me it was still a, a fun show i think it could have been uh less episodes and <laughs> that's true of most of their marvel netflix shows it's literally true of every single one of them i i i, I didn't think so about season one i don't think uh, i i felt that i think i might have felt that was paced out well that's actually fair but yeah but this this season specifically i think could have been a little more quicker I do think that the characters that they uh, well generally they're it it's good. It's not at that level of season one, and I think I care a little bit less about the characters. I I think everything Marco said is pretty true. My biggest complaint we'll go into it when we talk about the spoilers, but it feels messy. There's two separate kind of plot lines that don't mesh well together once this all wraps up Mm -hmm. um and another another thing is a big part of season one is so directly around frank's trauma and the both the antagonist and supporting characters play off of frank's direct trauma very well and I think that's less true here. It, it's still true, just not. It doesn't. It's not as direct. Uh, all in all, I would say. Tr- I'm sorry. I was. Just, I was just gonna say like I, I would. I feel like even towards like the middle half, they sort of subvert the the way you're supposed to feel about the his trauma. That's true. We could talk about that in a little bit. Um, all in all, I think it was pretty good. It wasn't as good as season one for sure. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't have too much to add to that. I think, <clears throat> in general, I, I agree with that overall assessment. I think season one was a much better show. Uh, I think it had more to say, and I think it said it in a way that was more succinct. I think this season felt a little messy in the same way that Daredevil season two did. It, I don't think it's bad. But I think it not having a more tight focus on a smaller cast of characters didn't do it any favors. And I think that a lot of the new characters that they established were not as strong as some of the main characters in the first season. And uh, 
Um, I wasn't crazy about some of the directions that they took some of the characters. I wasn't crazy about the pacing in general. I don't necessarily know that there was an episode that you could point to that was like a waste of time. There was definitely one. Uh, I would say like the 11th episode was uh, felt like a lot of filler. I so that might be true. I I, I literally watched it almost in like one sitting uh, in preparation for this review. So my opinion on that might be skewed a little. But I felt like rather than wasting a lot of time on one or two episodes, like has generally been the case with these shows, I felt like there were many throughout the entire season. There were moments that were that went on for too long. Yes. Or like, oh, this fight scene, we could have cut this probably two minutes earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, or I don't need another scene exactly like this or, you know, like. I don't need three scenes to tell me something that I figured out in one, you know? Um, Or there were a lot of, like, montage moments where it's like, here's a piece of music and a character doing something that's not interesting to try and sell you on a mood, you know? And I I think there was a lot of choices like that that didn't necessarily work for me. Um, So, to me, it's not that there's any one big glaring problem with Punisher Season 2. It's I think there are a lot of little choices... Or uh, perhaps, as you two have said, like realities of their production that led to it being a lesser product than season one was overall. But I did still enjoy it, and I didn't find it to be a slog to get through at any point, which is a lot more than I can say for like Jessica Jones season two, for example. I remember hitting a point in that show where I was only finishing it for the sake of our review because I didn't like any of the characters and I was frustrated with the story. And I have problems with Punisher season two, but nothing that made it so that it was not possible for me to enjoy the show. So uh, I enjoyed Punisher season two immensely. Clearly more than anyone else here, and that's fine. I thought that it did a lot of brilliant things. It had me on the edge of my seat for much of my viewing experience. I agree with that. Uh, I'm not typically the type of person to find myself bored. I think a lot of people who watch, I'm not saying this of you guys, a lot of people who watch this show saw quieter moments and wanted the show to hurry up and get somewhere. And I was very invested in those things. This show ties up a lot of loose ends from season one but makes great use of them. And I thought that a lot of the new additions to the cast actually added a lot of value to the show overall. Um, This season actually had what I feel are two of the stronger villains of any of the Marvel Netflix series. And that was something that I was really happy about as well. Uh, I had problems with it for sure. Did I like it as much as season one? No, but I think that it is a very, very worthy follow-up sequel to season one. Um, I, I do want to point out that John Barenthal, once again, probably the best leading man in all these Netflix shows. Yeah. Incredible definitely. job. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly don't even know that there's an argument against that point. You know, like I think there are plenty of reasons to like some of the other leads more. But I think when it just comes to like pound for pound, like what they're doing with the material they're given and like just the the pure craft of acting, 
uh, I gotta give it to to JV as well. I think I think he's really a talent. Yeah, and like uh, to something. Are, are we in spoilers? Oh, let's jump in. Let's jump in. If you if you haven't seen it yet, we will. come back to this space. If you have seen it, stick with us. To that point on his character and to what you had mentioned, Sean, and I know I, I had like messaged a group um, when I first started watching it. Like the those quieter moments, I think helped build the Punisher character separate from Frank, which they're they're very they do a really good job of deline- making that delineation and i enjoyed seeing that uh very much like it, it to what pete said there was much more of a craft and i think the comparison from that first issue from that first issue from that first episode down through like the last three that production quality sort of i think fell a bit and became more of an action-oriented romp where towards the beginning i thought it was going to follow up more on his like a more personal story um yeah yeah i think that's a really good point marco and it became just about his environment again whereas season one you focused on him and and that was the interesting part for me because i was interested in his character and his whole redemption deal and I think the biggest issue that I had in this for this season was that what I expected based on what I had been shown at the very beginning towards where Frank ultimately devolves to, I didn't I didn't like that. I it it I, I it was the definition of his character where I had two opinions versus season one and season two. And the season one char- uh, ultimately character who was Punisher, who was Frank, I didn't like. And I think that sort of affected the perception of the show towards the back half. So you felt like they they regressed him too much. I think they yeah they they regressed him too much and they made him too much of uh, like when he's in the zone he's in the zone and that's his character like that's actually who it is and I don't think I cared for that character and it, he he is that as the Punisher but no matter how you hide it. In, and, and express it in that like that from that first episode he is still that devil like devolved character of punisher and i don't like that character though the way it was portrayed so a couple thoughts here season two of daredevil portrayed Dare, uh, the punisher as a relentless punishing machine which is uh, he, he, that's him in the books he's a force of nature he he could team up with a criminal that is helping him, and as soon as he's been helped by the criminal, he immediately kills him because that's who he is. But season one of Punisher portrayed him as having maybe something more to offer. Uh, this kind of, uh, in a way, a lot of these Netflix shows do a, you know, that's before they become the character, right? The, the character that uh, everyone's familiar with. Um, and we see that at the beginning of season two here of the Punisher, which I really dug. I liked the Punisher outside of New York City. Uh, yep. That was really unique because there was no other Netflix Marvel character that's been depicted outside of New York. Um, and it had kind of a Logan vibe, 
which I really dug because he's a nice. I think overall it has a kind of a Logan vibe too. You know, there's a lot of inspiration from I think Wolverine as a character and how they chose to portray Frank. I think that's true too because there's that element to Wolverine as a character where is he just a mindless animal that just kills? And in in the same way, a lot of Wolverine stories has him as a mentor to like a younger girl. That's kind of right. Amy's role in this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So my the most I was really invested in Frank was the first half of the season because I think the first episode was soup was so well done. Yeah. yeah. I got really invested in um Beth. the emotion. Beth. Yeah, Beth was yeah, great. In, in Beth and and Beth's life, you know, and and that yeah, I think the emotion in their meeting and uh you know, their their sexual encounter and like him being honest with her. Uh, that I thought was really powerful. And it's funny because as much as I think I agree with what Marco's saying in my gut, I actually really like the, the de-evolution of Frank as a character, because I think that was one of the things that the show was trying to say. Yes, I I, I do agree with that, but that's Marco. I think is trying to say that he doesn't like that version of Frank. And I agree. Yeah. And I, but I think the thing is, Frank doesn't like that version of Frank either. And we're supposed to feel that way. And I think that first episode being the first episode is what makes it work for me so well is because the whole, at least for me, right. The whole takeaway from that was that Frank could be someone else. Frank could have another life where he maybe meets somebody else and gets to be a dad again and is a normal guy. But on some level, whether it's, because his like he he says when he's at his lowest point he's always been this way and this is always the person he was meant to be and there was no other way that might be true or maybe it is just because he's afraid of like Curtis thinks of letting someone in of of opening himself up to caring about someone else that uh, he says he'd rather shut the whole world out than risk being a part of it and I think that struggle for Frank was true last season but i think it's more true this season because he didn't have anything to do with this you know like until russo gets introduced he inserts himself in this situation for really no good reason you know if you want to argue that it's out of chivalry or out of you know wanting to protect this person that he feels like is weak that's probably true on some level but i think it's also true that uh, which is the other thing that's raised which is that he wanted an excuse to fight so um, oh, go ahead, Marco. Sorry, I, just one thing that uh, I think Pete really uh, exemplified was the that de-evolution of him being having always been that way, and I think for me, like I saw that, and, and especially the message that the show was trying to get across, which ultimately was these people are just these kinds of people, and I, like for me, seeing that and then seeing that in frank was kind of just sad for me and i i didn't i didn't appreciate that i think so definitely i i definitely hear your point but i i think Marcus that was just didn't like feeling things no no no. like like i was okay I, I was okay with that but i didn't like the way that that's how they left the character with the message right you wanted to still see some redemption for him right yeah but still have that message fine but i still wanted to see that redemption and you know be it as it may. Yeah, I, I think the thing is that Frank is a tough character in that sense because I think that as much as uh, – for me, right? Like I wanted that for him too. I remember watching the first episode and, and thinking 
Yeah, why can't this just be it? This should just be right? the last episode. Frank just hangs it up and he goes yeah. to Michigan or whatever. Yeah, but like, but that's not Frank. Right. You know, and I, like. I think, I think you're meant to want that for Frank. But yeah, Frank you're meant to those, want that for him. But one, of, he's one of those characters where it's just, it, that's not what, that's just not how his life is. His life's a tragedy. And I, I think uh, they make this illusion as well. And I mean, I don't think it's super subtle, right? Especially like when they're in Michigan and there's the country music and all that stuff. But like Frank is very much like that classic Western hero. You know, he's a gunslinger and that's what he is. That's what he does. And I think uh, the takeaway is supposed to be that, yeah, he he ultimately is a, is at least in some ways he's a good man. He's a complicated man with a lot of blood on his hands, but at the end of the day, like he's capable of doing things that are cold, but he isn't cold. He cares about other people, but I think he recognizes the reality of who he is and and some whether it's because of, you know, nature or nurture, right? Like he's defined by his trauma. And it's not something that I think he's really truly capable of getting over, maybe because he doesn't want to, maybe because he feels like he doesn't deserve it. But I think it's very much like uh, – I forget the film that they mirror in Logan, but Shane. there's that Shane. scene – Shane, thank you, yeah, uh, where like he says, like, I can't stay here, right? Like my job is making it so that you can stay here and you can have a normal life. That's over for me. That was never an option for me. There was no happy ending where I ride off in the sunset and hang up my guns and have a life for myself. I tried that and it was taken away from me. And he promises Beth that shit isn't going to end up on her doorstep. Well, guess what? He brings it right to her front door. And it's not his shit. It's someone else's shit that he drops on somebody else. And I think in the same way that that was a thing that defined Matt in season three of Daredevil, but he was able to come back from it. I just don't know that Frank is. So I, I have an overwhelming amount of thoughts about uh, this yeah, series and about everything you guys have been talking about. I, I, this conversation has been so nuanced without me even inserting myself already. Um, this season to me is a meditation on pain and how human beings deal with pain. So we already saw Punisher or Frank's initial reaction to his pain all throughout season one. That's what that was about. Um, but he dealt with it on some level by destroying Billy Russo completely. He just, he didn't kill him, but he wrecked him. I don't think that Punisher really realized though, that by leaving him alive, he was actually giving Billy a gift and the gift was pain. It was the gift of, well, now Billy is like you. Now Billy has a purpose that's beyond money and greed, right? Um, Frank's purpose is vengeance, and it's and it's his trauma, and it's his pain, and all that. Well, now Billy has that too, and I think that that made Billy a a, a more potent enemy than Frank initially had, and that's bad. That was a mistake in in a lot of ways, and he pays for that. And they actually talk about that throughout the show, but all the all the principal characters are struggling with some immense amount of pain yeah. for some reason. And I think that you could argue this the series is also about redeeming yourself and trying to 
rise above that pain, similar to Daredevil. But the big difference is that Matt Murdock was capable of redemption. And that show was about the principal characters rising up above the muck of Wilson Fisk and Kingpin's activity. This series is about Punisher falling down into... And rolling around in it. Right. But also having no desire to come away from it. Which is which is why their crossover in season two of Daredevil is so good because of yes. what what that represented for both characters. Yeah, and I think um, something that I think is really interesting. I was thinking about this, and uh, while I was watching this this season, and you just spurred this thought in me, Sean. There's that that conversation where they're on the rooftop, and Frank says to Matt that you're one bad day away from being me, and I think that's true, and I think that despite all that Matt went through. He never had a day that bad, you I, know? He I lost will... Electra. I That's bad. He's lost a lot. He's been through a lot. But he didn't have the level of betrayal that Frank did, you know, that like... Well, I was going to say, I think season three of Daredevil is that one bad day away for Matt and him actually be able to come above it. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I agree. I, I think that, first of all, I think that 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 scene on the rooftop works a lot better after after Punisher season two. Yeah, I already loved it, but I think if you go back and I plan to do this, I think if you go back and watch that now, it the has a whole other meaning because now we understand. Like even though it took place before Punisher season two, that per that version of Punisher is the version we're left with at the end of season two of Punisher. That being said, I think that the point is that. Matt Murdock and Frank Castle are not the same and that Frank was wrong because Matt redeemed himself after falling down as far as he could after um, Defenders, whereas Punisher doesn't even want to try. There's a point where it might be Karen Page. I think it was where she's talking to Frank in the hospital yes. and she, you know, she's, she's shooting her shot. She's kind of like, Hey, you know, there is a life. You could love someone else. You could, you don't have to chase ghosts. And he's like, I don't want to. And that I remember audibly going, Oh my God. When he said that, because then I understood everything this season was trying to show me that he's done being a regular person. He's Punisher. It's over. He is Punisher. That's all that there is anymore. And that actually is uh, one of the problems that I had with the show, and then I'll pass it on, was that um, there's a critical moment. And this was something that was constructed, I thought, so well. It's that episode. I can't remember the number, but it's one of the later ones where the, Billy Russo, on one hand, you have Billy Russo and his crew, Valhalla, uh-huh. uh, fighting Punisher in the warehouse, right? And that whole sequence. And then on the other side, you have Madani. And um, the doctor, uh, uh, Dumont. gosh, uh, sorry, Dumont. Dumont, Dumont. There you go. Uh, and and they're talking right. And through the conversation that Dumont is having with Madonna, you realize that she constructed a plan yeah. for how Billy Russo would crack Frank Castle by having him think he murdered innocent people. Right. They, I believe I believe okay. that was episode ten. Okay. Yeah. Probably my favorite episode. Now. Dude, yeah, that that scene where like Frank walks into the room is I one of the like we talked about John as an actor. Holy shit, man. Like, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. Like he he nails the shell shock tr- yeah. like 
things so fucking well. Now that was that was giving him trauma all over again because it made him think of his daughter. It made him the person who pulled the trigger on his family. Exactly. Yeah. And I yeah, you know what that makes me? I'm the monster now. Exactly. And so my problem is that they reversed that by telling him later that he actually didn't kill those people. The reason why I have an issue with that is because Punisher has to deal with look, you can't you can't realistically it's the man of steel problem. You cannot be having these kind of gunfights in the middle of New York and not have there be innocent bystanders. Eventually that will happen. It has to. And he has to deal with that. And he was dealing with it by giving up outright, which is what the doctor expected that he would do. That's how you beat him. I actually think that by robbing him of that and saying, actually, you didn't kill those people, it gives him a way out that he shouldn't have. He is not a hero. He is not. He's not supposed to get that moment. Superman can have that. Daredevil can have that. Punisher has to live with the reality of what he does. And what he does is something that will lead to innocent lives being lost. And he has to accept that. He has to accept that for him to be full Punisher. And they took that moment away from him. And I really didn't like that. Yeah. No, Superman and Daredevil represent this kind of greater hope of saving people. For for Superman, it's like a beacon of humanity. For Daredevil, it's a religious thing. For Punisher, his entire purpose is to take life yeah and obviously his entire agenda is to take the life of people he deems being unworthy of living anymore any myriad of criminals there's that whole pedophile thing earlier in the middle of the season that's like his thing but the reality is is when you deal with your problems in such a black and white way where lives will be taken the consequences of your actions could lead to a lot of innocent people getting hurt. That happened in season two of Daredevil, and that could have happened there. And I 100% agree with you, Sean. I thought this is it. It it it, it was a real. I think that was what happened in episode eleven, which is why I said it was the worst episode of the season. Um, Frank gets a, a get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. And it really undercuts the entire thing they had built up, like, two episodes in a row for. Yeah, so I I think the the main problem is that uh, they, and when I say they, I mean, like, both uh, the writers and, and the characters kind of want to, like, have their cake and eat it, too. You know, like, they want to uh, say that Frank isn't a hero and he's not a villain, he's, like, something else. But I feel like the show doesn't treat him that way, really, you know, like he is a, a animalistic man and he he's a brutal man sometimes but they do a lot of justification for his actions you know characters who he abuse uh, abuses come often come to love him you know uh in spite of himself and i think i think like for them to want to present present him in that way they don't necessarily do the best job of not framing him uh, as a more ambiguous character, they say that he's not a good guy, but they sure treat him like one uh, in in a lot of ways. And I think when uh, similar to probably how Marco seems to feel when when we got to that last scene, and it's kind of just Frank back out there, business as usual, um, you know, mowing people down without a second thought. It doesn't feel like there's been much growth or change, and you know, maybe that's the point, but. 
it doesn't feel particularly satisfying that I feel like he, when we see him doing that, we should feel something, right? Like either that that's a good thing or a triumph. And I don't think that's the right takeaway or that it's sad. And it, it, I don't know. It doesn't, that doesn't feel like the appropriate way to handle such a tragic and, and complex character that they, that they developed, you know, in season one with Frank. Well, why not? If, if, if it, if it's something that you see as being tragic, then it is. But if you see it as not being tragic, then it's not. I actually see it as, I felt, first of all, that sequence where he's mowing those dudes down, I was like, oh, that's awesome. Cause that's like a comic book Punisher thing. Um, but beyond that, I was left kind of feeling sad for him and for all of these characters because this was such an emotionally trying season. Um, and and almost equally to sad, I felt like it is what it is. And I think Punisher is a black mark on the world because he's not – he isn't Billy, Billy Russo in the sense that Billy Russo kills wantonly. He kills – mercilessly for pleasure he kills for greed he kills for whatever punisher kills because he's doing what he thinks is right i don't think billy thinks what he does is right i think he does it because he wants to and those are fundamentally different things that also separates billy from somebody like kingpin who even though he knows he's doing screwed up things he does believe that there is a greater good i have a vision at le- yeah, and at least in at least in Daredevil season one, I I believe that. But Punisher is he, he well, the methods are awful. They're completely disgusting. But he believes that what he is doing is needed, even if it's like forget right or wrong. It's necessary. It's, it's one of those things where it's like this is a necessary evil in the right. in the evils of the world around me. Exactly. And it doesn't even matter whether or not it's legal. He's going to do it and they're going to try to stop him and they're going to fail until they don't and he dies. That's his perspective. Yeah. And I, and honestly, right? Like that's what he wants. Yeah. You know, ultimately is to die. Um, but I think, you know, he's too brave or proud or stupid or crazy to end it himself, you know? So like in his mind, like he's going to wage a one man war on what he perceives as evil until somebody puts him in the ground. I think that all that would make sense. And I think the way that you're supposed to feel at the end is like sad because he is a tragic character, but I think it's all undercut because of the message that this show says, which is he's always been this way. So it, his trauma was just, you can argue an excuse his family was an excuse being in the army was just an excuse if he's always been like this and he's not a character who's ever going to change or see anything different then those years with his family sure they were filled with like happiness but ultimately it was just a reason for him to get back into the shit he's always wanted to do anyway well i i i I just think that's a disservice to that initial narrative in season one and what we saw in daredevil and uh when he had that crossover with him like it subverts that to an extent and i i i didn't appreciate that because i think you should have that feeling of okay he wasn't always like this 
and he's a victim of of his circumstance. Right, but the show portrays it as no, the circumstance gave him the reason. So here's my question though: Do you think that that's what the show is actually trying to say, or is that Frank's viewpoint of himself at his at an all time low? I thought that that's what the show was trying to say, which is what if it was just the character and not what the show had tried to to portray it it was just frank then fine yes i would have totally been about that but i think the message that the show is trying to push on to his character and overall is sometimes you're a shitty person regardless of whether you're good or bad so you think okay cool my question to you then is to define what you think the punisher is what is it that he's always been so Based off of again, I don't read the comics, so based off of yeah. season one, yeah, he was a character who had that brotherhood, who had that fellow fellowship, and circumstances made him the reason that he was. Here, circumstances accentuated who he was, and that right. didn't mesh. But for me, but but again, who is he then? Who is it? who is the Punisher? Oh, oh, so then he is season season two Punisher. Like that, that is who the Punisher is, and I think. I'm just not a fan of that archetype. But define that with verbiage. Like, like, tell me with words who the Punisher is to you, based on what you saw in season two. He's just a dude who comes to fuck shit up, and he doesn't care. And the his only rationale for it being okay is he doesn't do it to uh, people who he deems are okay. Right. Okay. So, with with that being the definition then I would say that that isn't who the Punisher is portrayed as being in this season because he clearly cares about uh, people who aren't him and he clearly cares about harming people who are good. Um, no, t- totally. I think, I, I, sorry, I mean like the messaging of the show undercuts that. But that's the thing is, I think what Sean's saying, and I agree with, is I actually don't think the show says that. Right. Because I think that okay. a great a great example of what I believe Sean's talking about is, um, I don't remember his. It was, was it was it it was the Russian guy who he lets go. I can't remember his last name. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't remember either. It's like Pol something, like Polinev or something. Uh-huh. But um, that that character is not a good man. He's a criminal. And Frank does take mercy on him uh, going against his his own, like, code, right, Uh, in this instance, because he's a father. And he empathizes with the fact that if he kills this guy, even if he's a bad guy, that means he's, you know, killing a a husband and a father, right? And that that there are people that he's leaving behind um, that would be hurt by Frank killing him. You know, I promise and, you, Fr- comical Frank would have killed that guy. Yeah, maybe so. Um, and I and I think that is it speaks to his uh, his humanity. And I think that there is to me what that says is that Frank isn't really that person. That he isn't really a ki- like a real killer, right? Like Frank's a killer, but I don't think that he's like a true uh, sociopath, right? Because he does care about people and he does have a code. And his code isn't rigid and insane. It's malleable. You know, he's he I think he is wrong to play judge, jury and executioner sometimes without a second thought. Right. But he isn't 
incapable of mercy. Well, that plays to the role of Billy in this season because he has his entire memory wiped out to start it off, seemingly, and he still has he still displays all these sociopathic tendencies, which are exploited by his his doctor. Can we talk about the fact that Billy Russo, first of all, brilliant character? I think I think they did a phenomenal job. With he was him. really good this season. Uh, he was great in the last season too, and yeah, I thought. The, the elevation of his storyline really worked. The the mirroring, the mirror image of him versus Frank is actually done in a very different way than we often see. So Frank, right, learns, he sees his family die, and then he has to deal with the trauma of that, and then he learns later who did it. Billy is hospitalized, right? Um, and knows that he experienced trauma but doesn't know what it was. Or how then, it was done. Or how or exactly or how it was done. Then he learns what he did um to 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 Frank. Or rather, he learns that there's someone coming after him. Then he learns it's Frank. Then he learns what he did to Frank to make Frank come for him. So it's the opposite. They're learning information in opposite ways. Right? Right. Um, which I loved. I which, loved the way that they... Go ahead. Which is fitting because of how he got fucked up at the end of season one to begin with, which was by Amir. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, by the end, right, in a twisted, sick way, totally appropriate of Billy Russo, he's actually ready to move on. He's ready to do what Punisher cannot do. Which is go on and live a life without all of this. He yeah, leaves. Violence. Yeah, he leaves Valhalla. He's ready to go away with Doctor Dumont. But what I also love is that Doctor Dumont is so afflicted by her pain and her trauma that she's so twisted that she's not very, very necessarily ready. For her to move on, that for her to have a life with Billy, he's got to be like that, right? She is inciting this violence. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was so genius that she's a doctor. She's a psychiatrist who's so broken by her own life that for her, saving one of her patients means going as deep as they have gone. And not wanting to come out. Harley Quinn and Joker. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, there there was that relationship was such a interesting part of the show. Cause I remember when it first happened, it made me really uncomfortable. And I thought I was I thought I was gonna be like, yo, like what the fuck are they doing with this? You know, well, you're meant to feel uncomfortable by it. Right. But that's the thing, right? Like at first I was really I was really prepared for it to be like bad writing and like be offensive to me you know um but it was actually so good that it got that reaction out of me and then sold me on why it made sense you know and i i I like applaud them for that you know because like they totally uh faked me out you know um and I, i was impressed by that you know and i thought her character was insanely compelling uh because she was one of the most unpredictable pieces on the board you know like i i 
never was totally able to anticipate her actions. You know, there were some times where she did things that I thought she might, but it was, I was never, she was one character who I never knew exactly what her end game was, like, from moment to moment. And, like, that made her super, super fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, and all of those scenes with her and Madani, um, you know, I, I read some reviews and, and there were people very critical of, of those instances and felt that those moments were slow. I loved those scenes. Dude, I thought that was that was the bet one of the best parts of the show is when they're having that conversation while it's cutting between yeah. like the the action. I was like, this is fucking brilliant. It's a counterpoint. It's awesome. Yeah, exactly. It's it, they they were um on opposite sides of the spectrum and there's a moment that I'll never forget where um where they're they're talking about, you know, Punisher and, and Billy and, and it's particularly what Dumont does for her life. And Madani's like, or, um, yeah, I think it's Madani that says, you see these people after they've done something horrible. So for you, you're able to sympathize with them. I can't sympathize with these people because I have to deal with the horror of what they do. And it's, I thought it was so fascinating um, just because Dumont can look at Billy and see him as a fractured man who resembles her father, right, um, in a lot of ways, which is why she takes him on. But I, my question was, would she have done this had she known who he was before he was harmed? You know, she meets mm-hmm. a broken bird. Right. Would she have done that when he was an eagle terrorizing everybody else? Right. No. Definitely not, right? Like... Because I think, go ahead. Yeah, I I think what you're saying is like super salient, and uh, I I really think that like that's what makes her so um like twisted. You know, like Billy says, like I, I think everybody uh wants someone to feel a little bit worse than them. Yeah. Yep. Oh man, right? Exactly. And so she, in a in a perverted way, gets off on the fact. That Billy and other people who she's dealt with in the past, I'm sure, are more screwed up than she is. And she has an opportunity to save them. Yeah, and I I think it's very clear that her desire to help people is is not... um, Altruistic. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Phil. It's not not from uh, some innate altruism. It's self-serving. And you you get a sense for how truly cold she is. When uh, Billy talks about the fact that she's complicit in murder. And she says, well, I didn't know them. Yeah. It's like, and Billy's the one who says, well, they were people and they died. You know? And she doesn't care. Nope. Exactly. At all. Right? Is is totally unaffected by that. Yeah. And uh, I think that was very interesting to me. Let's, let's talk about a character we actually have not mentioned yet. Um, let's talk about John Pilgrim. Who, you know, maybe Let's you guys... Talk about John Pilgrim. Yeah. Now, John Pilgrim is the, you know, the character that before when we when we originally previewed uh, the Punisher Season 2, he was touted as this alt-right Christian fanatical person. The alt-right thing didn't play too much into the show. Not nearly mm-hmm. as much as I thought it would. Um, there were but elements the Christian part. There were elements, but it wasn't like what I... It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like an alt-right villain. It was like a guy who... 
was like a former white supremacist. Exactly. And he's a fascinating character because he's actually trying to like he's he's trying to redeem himself through like he's not trying to do what Frank's doing. He's a very similar character to Frank, but John is trying to redeem himself where I don't, I don't think Frank really is and he actually doesn't have anything to redeem himself for with respect to how he got to where he is. Uh, Frank had trauma done to him. Uh, John Pilgrim was the one doing trauma and is trying to redeem himself from that. Um, and so he's he's actually taking steps to try to prevent himself from becoming the Punisher. He's trying to prevent the murder of his family. He knows what's at stake. He's told by um, the people who are over him, the, 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 the elites, that if he doesn't get the job done, that his family will die. And that, to me, once that element was brought into play, that made him a much more fascinating character because then it's like, okay, well, he's got something real to fight for, right? And then you get that moment where he's fighting with Punisher in the, you know, the, the whatever, the, the, I can't think of the word, but right outside the, uh, the motorhome that they were at. Um, I don't it's even like know. Junkyard. Yeah, the junkyard. Thank you. Jeez. Um, where I said to my, I actually said to my girlfriend, this is stupid. These two don't have to fight. And I didn't think it was stupid storytelling. I just thought, like, putting myself in the moment with these characters, like, you guys can put, there's an opportunity for Punisher to prevent what happened to him happening to John. And that's where it ends up going, where they actually team up and John is redeemed and doesn't kill Amy when he could have and actually, you know, goes off and presumably goes to live a normal life with his with his children. Right, and I I loved that yeah. because I, I was really frustrated by his character. He was another he was another element of the show that I was initially very frustrated with, and then it all it all paid off, and I was impressed by that. I was impressed by how his character was written because, to your point, Sean, he's a man who really seems to um, have guilt for his actions and the person that he was. Remorse, you know, and. Yeah. yeah, right. Is divorced from it. And um and I think I think that uh seeing that, right? And 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 getting to that point where Frank sees that like was really satisfying and well executed because I think um for a while I was very much like okay, yeah, like you've got a family or whatever and I get it, but like you're killing people like without reason. You know, like, there were times where, like, he would kill people underneath him or stuff like that. And I was just like, this guy is, like, a hypocrite, you know? Um, but the more time we spent with him and the more I got to understand his logic, you know, and, like, see uh, that there was weight behind the killing, right? The thing that um, Frank says where it's uh, just because I can do it doesn't make it easy, right? That made me see where I could sympathize with him and, and where I could see that he really was just someone who saw the light and is, was really looking for a second chance and took it from the wrong people. Yeah. Phil, you were trying to jump in. This character never paid off for me and he represents 
in a vacuum, I think the character was totally fine. I think a big thing I, I talked about uh, in our non-spoiler aspect is that there were two separate kind of plot lines that never converged cleanly. And it's basically the stuff that involves uh, Pilgrim and the Schultzes and everything with Billy Russo. It, it, I, I think his role in this season is not too dissimilar to what the role of the timothy mcveigh allegory of season one was supposed to be this is kind of another refraction of what the punisher could be uh trying to make the kind of commentary of what the nature of kind of taking life is like if when you take that into your own hands so in a vacuum i understood kind of the point but it felt too disjointed from what the larger season was about and that maybe plays into the fact that it was 13 episodes and that's too long, but it felt messy from an entire season standpoint. I, I agree that it felt messy because it goes from, hey, this like the focus to like Pilgrim's the focus and watch out, he's the bad guy and we got to protect Amy too. Hold on a second. Let's put the brakes on that. Jump into Russo really quick. Exactly. And, and really quick became like eight episodes it's like the whole show right i don't think it balances these two separate elements well i i definitely agree with that because um i think that that is exemplified nowhere more than like amy as a character Mm -hmm. uh amy is a totally unnecessary character plot wise in the same way that pilgrim and the schultzes are like they are all interesting and there are aspects of all of their characters and their dynamics with Frank that I enjoyed. But the real <clears throat> crux of the narrative really came from Frank's ongoing conflict with Billy. And I think that, like, if the show was shorter, that's what the focus would have been. You know? So that, that ties me together with another point. I liked Amy just fine, but... She I didn't dislike the character. Like, I just that's not that's not my point. Just yeah, want to make that I, clear. I, I, that's fine. Uh, I liked her just fine, but she kind of felt like a stand-in for Micro from season one. Uh, this kind of resource for Frank. Uh, but how was she a resource? She was like Google shit for him. Oh. <laughs> 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 computer sean (laughs) she's micro but uh i i felt like micro uh was a more developed character in his motive for uh, for why he was helping frank than amy was in this season uh so i guess my larger criticism is all the new characters they introduced were fine but i thought they were all kind of underdeveloped compared to the characters from season one and that's not just the fact that they the characters from season one now have a second season to be in but i thought the characters in season one were more well developed in season one than these new characters in season two were in season two but amy amy's character was very clear she she was on the run she was frank's ward he's protecting her and he needs to ensure her safety the same way he could not ensure the safety of his own children that's all she's meant to be right and i get that dynamic and i i think that 
outline is clearly defined, but with Micro, you understood his motivations. Uh, there was more time spent on developing what his character was about. You're comparing you're comparing characters who had two very different roles, though. Right, but, right. Mike, Micro is like a major, major part of everything that's going down in season one. Where, and and yeah, Frank has to protect him, but Frank also is working with him. They're 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 on the same level in a they're certain equals. respect. They're they're teaming up to do something. This is Frank protecting someone who is completely helpless without him, and then showcasing the ways in which he grows to love her and care for her, and how she represents his own children in a lot of ways, which puts a lot more pre- a lot less pressure on her as a character to have to be something because she is something inherently too frank. And I, I agree with you, Sean. I, I think that the role that she plays is an important one because she's someone for Frank to bounce off of and like to humanize him. And that's important. But I think my issue is is like what, what uh, Marco said, where the show literally it establishes a plot and, and a bunch of questions in the first few episodes. And then, like, Madani shows up and it's like, hey, wait, we got to go on a detour to New York and do this Billy Russo plot. And yep. that plays out until the end of the show. And then her plot gets explained along the way, but not in a way that's direct to the action or what's going yeah. on. Yeah. And yeah, then it yeah. gets wrapped up at the end as kind of an afterthought. So, like, I feel like there's these two separate storylines, which is fine, but, like... I, I feel like that whole narrative gets underserved and I feel like that makes her feel irrelevant in some ways. Like I feel like if you cut out that entire plot, you would still have the meat of the show. You know, you could have uh you could have the establishing of Frank on the run and all that stuff and he, you know, has found this life for himself, but then he gets caught up and he's got to go f- because Jigsaw's around and whatever. You know, like, you could get to that point and still have all the main beats and all these really major established characters. And for her to be a new character who's introduced in this season, she spends a lot of time sitting on the sidelines. And the show addresses it, addresses it you know, that she's literally sitting around waiting for something to happen. Because she has to. I guess that takes me to my point. I don't think... Uh, I think Micro, comparing her to Micro, is probably a misnomer on my end. But uh, I, I think my larger point was meant to be that every one of these characters in season one uh, played a crucial part in the way the plot developed. And so these characters were developed as necessary. Whereas to Sean's point, she's playing a role mm-hmm. and that's that's the extent of her character. Yeah, maybe. If I guess like depending on your perspective, like is there anyone here who didn't care about her character? It's all right. Yeah, it was all right. I was very invested. Yeah, it's not that I didn't care about her character. It's more that I just felt like her and her plot were both squished on either end of like the meat of the show. I think that there's there's validity to the argument that the show is trying to do two different things. And I think that's probably one of the major criticism of all the Netflix shows is that they do this. Yes. Um, I think that this was not done gracefully and that's my biggest problem with the show is just simply that the plots never come together Uh, oftentimes they do and when they don't it's bad um but i don't think that 
Amy's character, at least not in my opinion, was less than she probably would have been otherwise. Because whether or not, like, you could feel how you feel about the, the like, her plot being condensed. Um, but I don't think that her character would have been much more than she is had they had, let's say, 13 episodes of just that. Or six episodes of just that. Simply because she has to be what she is in order for this in order for Frank's story to function. And I don't think that that's a problem in storytelling um because sometimes you have to have characters like that. Um and she does have things about her that make her special and interesting. Um she's she's you know she's fun, she's feisty, she's she's capable and part of the show is is showcasing how she's capable and the ways in which she grows and changes as a result of what hell she's been involved in. But you can't talk about her without talking about Frank and that's the point. Supporting characters are supposed to be that. Yeah, and I and I think that's fine. Like I think it's fine that she's a supporting character versus like a more prominent character. Um I don't think that's inherently bad. Uh especially given her age and like experience level and what we're talking about and who we're talking about, right? Like the other major players in this game are killers, you know? Uh or or like major government agents and stuff like that. It makes sense that a young um girl isn't necessarily like on that level in the action. She has no agency. But I th- Right, right. You would have no agency in that situation. Um, but but I think it's it's because she's established with her plot that, like, so much of, like, the story is her plot being put on the side that um, I think that's the bigger issue is I feel like the character doesn't have room to breathe. Not that she's not, like, interesting, you know, or likable, uh, but I feel like the the Billy Russo plot of it all smothers the new plot elements that are established. And I think that the show probably would have been better served finding a way to connect her to uh, something going on in New York that is closer to the Billy Russo storyline. You know, like, she's involved with the actual Russians, and then when Jigsaw comes to power, he gets in a deal with them somehow, and that's how, you know, like, it all, and then those two plots come together and make more sense, rather than having it be this totally other uh, thing that's, you know, this bigger group that we don't really explore very much, you know? And, and again, it's not, it's not to say that those plot elements didn't work for me, it's just that in a show that I, that I mostly liked, if we're looking for the things that that we're trying to critique like those are those are kind of my major issues with the, with the story so let's let's uh let's jump into the end let's jump into the way that things end with billy and frank and then we're gonna wrap so the last time we see billy he has been shot multiple times by madani he goes to visit you know a fixer-upper guy uh in a shady warehouse area and you gets know, left in a fucking gets dumpster left in a dumpster <laughs> uh they play that amazing song by Alice in Chains Rooster where we get to see him kind of you know walking around and we know that it's probably over for him he calls Curtis and uh says you know can you come see me can you be a brother one last time 
and it isn't Curtis that shows up, but it is uh, Punisher. And I make that clear distinction that it is Punisher and not Frank because of how he deals with it. You know, it, it doesn't end up being, a, a, you know, what I think you could reasonably think it might have been, which is like a final moment where Frank sits with him while he dies or they share some final words, some poignant words. Um, Billy Russo gets cut off and gets shot by Frank or by Punisher uh, very, very abruptly. But I think if he hadn't shot him, Billy was about to say, I'm sorry for everything that I've done because he says whatever I've done and then he gets shot. And I think he was about to say, I'm sorry. And uh, that those words have no value anymore for Punisher because it's not about that anymore. It's that's done. So did you guys think that that was an effective way to close out the Billy angle? Would you have killed him this season if you were in charge? And did you want there to be like a more epic fight? Did you want something like that? Or are you happy with the fact that it was kind of a more low key close out for Billy? I think that I, you know, can't prove it, but my feeling in my gut is they killed him because they thought the show was ending. I read an interview to the contrary with, uh, I believe his name is Stephen Lightspeed or Lights Lightfoot. or something like that. Lightfoot. There you go. Yeah. Who said that. Lightspeed. <laughs> some, <laughs> that's light something. Light something. Yeah, that's badass. <laughs> um, he said that the series, as they as they cooked it up and built it, that it didn't feel right narratively if Billy lived again because a big chunk of the season is talking about how Frank made a mistake by letting Billy live. That 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 was an error in judgment that now is he's paying for. He's paying the price for letting him live, which may have actually been a part of Frank's humanity shining through in that moment. And that he needed to die in order to establish Punisher and to close out that loose end. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I I think that was the right way to go either way, uh, regardless of the motivation. I I would have killed Billy, I think, because I agree with that point. I think um, the reason that the reason that I feel like you need to kill Jigsaw is because Frank is a killer, and there's no reason for the Punisher to not kill Jigsaw. And I, I think that, like, it's clear that it was a mistake that he didn't kill Billy the first time, right? And, like, uh, I, I believe it was out of, you know, like, his desire to see Billy suffer, right? Um, and and more so than mercy, in my mind. You know, like, I believe that he still, you know, like, would have a hard time putting Billy down. But I think now, seeing that he left that loose end that there was a bad man that he should have killed and he didn't and people died for it, that's, you know, that's the only way that that situation ends in my mind. So that, that scene was funny because he walks in and I'm like, all right, this is, you know, it's towards the end of the show. It's a superhero show. They're going to say some words. They're going to exchange some feelings. And Frank's going to kill him. Uh, and when Frank just, like, shoots him mid-sentence, I, I'm I'm always the kind of the, the the person be like, all right, they can they can start wrapping up this conversation. Like, you can just kill him now. And when he sort of just like, <laughs> and like when he did that, and just like shave, just like yeah, whenever we, poof, and I was like, ah, oh, shit, that was kind of empty. <laughs> oh, dude, I that's so funny. I had the exact opposite reaction to it. Like when it happened, I was like, oh my, like holy shit, 
You know, like that was one of those moments um, to me that's like defining of of what they're trying to say about Frank and where he's at at this point. You know, it was interesting just because when he and Curtis talk about Billy earlier, Frank is clearly upset uh, by the prospect of that, like Billy doesn't remember what he's done and that this is the version of Billy that he loved. But at this point, that's not true anymore. You know, he knows that Billy was complicit in or, again, responsible for, uh, I'm sure in Frank's mind, the plan to tear him down. You know, and it's like he knows like there's the clear confirmation there that like regardless of if Billy remembers what he did or doesn't remember what he did, that like he's a crazy monster. And that, like, Frank needs to put him down. I don't want to skim over the fact that Marco did say, usually when these people have these kinds of conversations, I say, they can die now. (laughs) Is that just how you feel in general, like, Marco? Whenever people are having conversation that runs long, you just want them to die? (laughs) You must feel like that every week on this podcast. (laughs) The thing is, I, I did, you know, what, two seasons of the Riverdale Review with Marco? I know that's how Marco operates. Well, he's a killer. He's out for blood. Told I you at the top of the show. Episode. I told you at the top of the show. That's right. I, what did you know? I'd believe it. I'd do it. <laughs> I think uh, Marco's message is uh, is pretty clear. Uh, we're all about to get offed <laughs> because this episode is running long. Um, I do want to wrap. Matt's gonna finally be happy. Yeah. Right. I, I do want to want to wrap us up um, and just real quick. Let's just. Is this an effective – if this is the last season, are you satisfied? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It wasn't perfect, but it was good, and I, I enjoyed it, and it, it definitely wasn't a slog to get through. And despite the criticisms that I do have of it, like, my overall reactions are very positive, you know? I think this is in the upper echelon, excuse me, of these Netflix Marvel shows. And, um, you know, I'm – like, for the most part, uh, I, I think that, like, the cream of the crop of the Marvel Netflix shows are some of the best superhero adaptions that there have been, you know? And as somebody who's not a fan of The Punisher, I'm a really big fan of this version of The Punisher. So, you know, as much as I'm bummed that this kind of era is coming to an end and I'd love another season of Daredevil and another season of Punisher, uh, I, you know, I'm glad that we got what we got and that it was good. Uh, for me... This, unlike Daredevil, I feel that with Punisher, if this was the last season and Daredevil was continuing on, that'd be fine. I don't think we need to see more. I think this is okay. We know what happens from here. It's always going to be the same. He's just going to kill people, and they're going to try to stop him, and they're not going to. That's it. So I think this closed out the emotional arc for the character, and that's all you really need. So yeah, uh, that, this I, is in I, comics. I, I, I think that's that's how I feel about it. It closed out all the things that I would care about. Everything after this is sort of just like the gangster of the of the week kind of thing. Yeah, who is he shooting this week? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's going to close out this supersized episode of the Comics Pals. Hopefully you enjoyed our conversation about The Punisher Season 2. Uh, let us know your thoughts if you have watched it. Um, are you prepared to say goodbye to this iteration of 
Frank Castle, or yes. do you want more? <laughs> All right. Uh, the yeses have it. Um, and also let us know your thoughts about uh, other things we talked about on the show. Uh, there are plenty of ways you can reach out. We are at the Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. You can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. You can leave us a comment on YouTube while you're there. Make sure to subscribe to our channel, share the video with your friends, and like it. Uh, all of those things are free to do, and they help us out a lot more than they cost you. Uh, just to let you guys know, a little programming note, something I probably should have done earlier, but I forgot to do so. Uh, we've got our most recent book club out right now, the Hellboy Seeds of Destruction book club. Uh, we all, I think I speak for everyone when I say we had a blast doing that one. So go oh, check yeah. that out. Go support that. Um, the next one up will be Captain Marvel. It will come out. At some point, you guys will be alerted to that fact um, through social medias, <laughs> through, you know, hey, hey, I, I don't recall the date. Um, they come out at the no, end just, of every month. Every yeah, month. The last, just, the last Friday funny. of every month. Um, that said, if you want to read along, yeah. read the 2014 Kelly Sue DeConnick Captain Marvel 1 through 14. So yeah. Read along with us. Yeah. We had some 2014 specifically. Name. Yeah, Kelly Sue and David Lopez. There you go. So, uh, yeah, let's get into some plugs. Pete. Thank you guys so much for joining us here on another episode of the Comics Pals. It's good to be back. I missed you. Uh, if you want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, come talk to me about Punisher or any other stuff we talked about this week. There's a lot of good news. And, um, you know, if you want to check out some more from me, you can find me over on our sister show, The Video Game Pals, along with Sean. It's a very similar program, only it's all about the world of video games. And uh, there was some good stuff this week. We're going to be talking about the uh, Nintendo Indie Highlights uh, video that came out just last week. Um, so you can uh, come hear a conversation about that tomorrow. And if you want to get some more of my work, you can uh, go visit LootPots.com, where I'm a part of the team over there. I do uh, news, reviews. Uh, I host a Nintendo podcast over there called The Potscast. So if you need more of me talking about Nintendo or you want to go check out uh, my one of my recent reviews, uh, you can go uh, give them a like and a follow and all that fun stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Oh, and go check out the book club again because it, it was a great time. And Hellboy, really cool. Never read it before. Enjoyed it. Marco? You can find me at Mr. Marco Animoto on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I mentioned earlier I have a short comic on uh our site under the meet the pals page you can check my bio it's there's a link there and then on my instagram as well there's a direct link to it and i did also want to mention uh if you guys have been following me on social media i recently went to dr and the very last picture of one of my recent posts was us almost dying uh because we lost the wheel on of our car on the highway and that spurred a thought in me that uh i actually picked up a bunch of marvel books because I don't read enough Marvel and enough of the big two. And I also realized, I think... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You almost died, hold on, 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 hold on. Damn, Sean, I feel it now. There you go. But I also realized, you know what I realized? I don't think anybody but Sean really reads weekly Marvel or like monthly Marvel stuff. And so, you That's know what? Somebody needs to guy. come here and call him out on his bullshit with Marvel. So I'm going to take up that task. <laughs> Wait, okay, did you just announce that you're going to read Marvel Weekly? Yeah. Sweet. So I got Publicly. I got Guardians of the Galaxy number one. I have Avenger, uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes Avengers 13, 
Friendly Spider Friendly Neighborhood Spider Man number two, and I got Wars Hell number one. Some of those are really good titles. Hell yeah. We'll never know how this near death experience made Marco decide to read more <laughs> comics. Oh, it changed. Marco, me. you gotta do me a favor. You gotta make us a video for our channel. How 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 I learned to stop caring and read more <laughs> Marvel. <laughs> How how comic books saved my life. Oh my goodness. <laughs> An editorial article <laughs> by it's, uh, Marco Cunolato. It's linked in all of my emails. Yes, oh, indeed. Boy. You can find that on my website. <laughs> <laughs> Comicspals.com well, we... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Phil, what are your plugs? Well, I guess we should get the Kale plugs. Kale? Oh wait, what's this? Kale is evolving. <gasps> oh boy! No, wait, press B. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that. I, I just did. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm the true final form of Kale. Oh no, he's you actually de evolved. He's grown younger. <laughs> you can find me at all social medias at Toto and Toe. That's T O and the rest. Um, <laughs> now I want to plug my latest pro- product, <laughs> Old Kale's Old Fashioned Grits. <laughs> like <happening>. me, <laughs> these grits are chewy and not very pleasant. Over to you, Frill. <clears throat> Thank you, Kale. <laughs> That's for me. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cyborg Bebop. Uh, Hellboy was very good. As mentioned before, check it out. Sean and I, we recorded a uh, Royal Rumble preview, which will uh, will be a little bit dated by the time this episode comes out. But uh, feel free to listen to that to hear our uh, preview of the Royal Rumble and the road to WrestleMania. So there is a little bit of interest there. And uh, I think we're doing a review of the Royal Rumble and TakeOver yeah. uh, Phoenix. So you can check that out next week as well. Hashtag the wrestling pals. We're back with high, with much demand. As for me, I am on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to talk about the Royal Rumble, the Punisher, DC, Marvel, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With that, we're the Comics Pals signing off. Take care, guys. See ya next week. Bye. I don't know where I am. Do you want to play a game? <laughs>